Hi there. I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer, and I started this podcast because I really like talking with and learning from other researchers. This episode I'm really happy to bring you today, as I'm always happy to bring these episodes to you. I had this uh, really nice, relaxed conversation with Dr. Dan Chavas. So we uh, got in touch with each other. I got in touch with Dan because uh, he knows Talia Mayo. Uh, Talia Mayo and I had a really nice conversation about tropical cyclones and her pathway into science a couple episodes ago. And she recommended that I talk to Dan. So we got in touch and we just hit it off right away. We uh, had what I think is a really excellent chat. We talked about virtual conferences. We talked about hurricanes on exoplanets, hurricanes on idealized planets. We talked about his pathway into science, which involved a lot of interesting stops. He uh, lived in France for a time. He spent some time at Princeton. He spent some time at MIT um, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison also. We talked about creativity in science or art in science, which is often a topic that comes up on the show, and I was really happy to get into that with him. So, yeah, I don't want to take up too much time here up top. There's so much good stuff to, to get to, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So uh, if you want to follow him, he's uh, on Twitter at Dr. Chavas, just his last name there. And he's got a website. His his Purdue website is pretty detailed. He's got lots of stuff on there, lots of different sections. You can learn more about his work. And uh, we also talk about uh, race and racism in science a bit, uh, kind of in the second half. We touch on that topic a little bit. So there's lots of good stuff here. And if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, thanks for your patience. There was a little bit of a delay in getting this out there into the world. So <laughs> thanks for being patient. Okay, yeah, I think that's all that I need to say up top. So thanks very much for tuning in. Let's get into this conversation with Dr. Dan Chavas. Here we go. Thanks very much for doing this. Totally. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having, cool. having me on here. So It's yeah, a pretty cool thing you're doing. Looks like oh, thanks. you've been I doing it for a couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, two and a half years. So February will be three years. So yeah, we're coming up on a nice, nice anniversary here. And uh, yeah, it's been really rewarding to do. Um, I get to talk to people. I get to learn from them. Uh, I get to share it with the community. And you know, there's an, an audience out there. There's people listening. So I really appreciate that. And uh, it's been it's been really good. I, uh, I'm glad I, I basically plan to keep doing it as my kind of outreach, uh, activity, you know, indefinitely. And, uh, the, what I wanted to say, what I wanted to flag up is like, I haven't done a ton of research and I, I usually don't do that much research on my guests because yeah. I want to learn from you directly, sure. like a bit more about your area. And I'm, I always like talking to people like yourself who, um, you're still, you're under the, like, like you'd go to AGU, right? You're under that broad umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know a whole lot about your specific field, you know. Um, so I was just having a look at your, your website here, and I um, was wondering, you mentioned something that you're trying now in 2020, these uh, short YouTube recorded presentations yeah. um, on from uh, recently published papers. 
How's that been going? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I, I um, did it. It was earlier in the year. I haven't done new ones since then. But yeah, it was a little bit of uh, realizing that, um, you know, you get to present your work at conferences. Um, but even when you go to conferences, most people miss your talk anyways, and you miss most of other people's talks. And then also it just papers are really dense and there's a lot of them. And so, and then, um, and so I, I, I realized that I would put in a lot of time to create a nice talk at some point. And some of those talks, the YouTube presentations are actually from mm. their talks from a few years ago, even. Right. But then when I, I get frustrated, because, you know, kind of like anyone, you know, you, you like find something interesting and then you find, and then other people talk and they, it's like they missed your, your research or something. And so you're like, mm. oh, but we know that already. <laughs> like, but I showed that. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of feeling like, huh, like, can I do a better job of, of, um, uh, communicating my research and the important things that I find, um, than papers, which are hard, like I said, are not, you know, if you think about the fraction of the, of the field, or at least the part of your field that you think, you know, is your work's relevant to the fraction of those people who actually get to read your paper, who get to understand it. Um, and then the other part is that, uh, when, you give talks increasingly i realize like you can make beautiful talks and you can use movies and animations and communicate much more effectively than in a paper format where you just write words and you are stuck with static figures and so hmm. um yeah so i just i sort of was like well why don't i just put these on youtube like why do i have to wait for a conference why does somebody have to invite me somewhere um, to yeah. try to communicate some of these things uh and so it's sort of in between kind of research communication and even kind of teaching of like there's oftentimes i think one thing that's nice is when you give a talk if you give it at least i feel like if you give a good talk um you spend a lot of time on the intro part where it's like let mm. me really break down why you should care about this at all and then i, yeah. I don't know if you know maybe that's something that people are some people are better at than others in papers but i just think paper format we kind of turn into like pure scientist mode where it's just like mm. here i'm going to list these 30 you know, citations instead of like, whereas then when we give a talk, we make these beautiful, really clean diagrams to try to convey yeah. at a conceptual level, um, you know, the, the reason why what you're doing matters. And so I, uh, yeah, I don't right. know. So yeah, I just kind of thought, well, I have these talks made and why, instead of giving them to like 200 people total, why not just like put them online? And then if somebody wants to find them, they can, um, yeah. And they don't have to, you know, yeah, I don't have to, like, we have the internet now, we can communicate these things. I don't need to, I don't need to be there physically to do it. So, um, yeah, I like your point about introductions, you know, in papers, they kind of serve the role of um, acknowledging everyone who's ever worked in that area yeah. before <laughs> and giving, giving a bit of a nod to like, thank you for doing that bit of work. Thank you for doing that bit of work. And it's important. That's good. Right. But you're right that it doesn't necessarily make for an actual good introduction to the topic. Yeah. It's a literature review. It's yeah. a literature survey. Um, and that an introduction in a talk, um, and in a textbook, by the way, right? Like textbooks actually don't usually have long lists of citations. And there's a reason for that because right. they know it doesn't make for good, good reading. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, so they say, well, how do we actually introduce the concept and get somebody plugged into this idea? So yeah, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. I think um, one other thing just related to that is that I, cause I find myself with my, my own research and my, with my students as I try to teach students, you know, how to give nice talks is that 
like the best talks I find have no words on them. They're sort of just like, or maybe yes. there's, you know, one set, one phrase at the top, but it's mm-hmm. like, if you can show schematically or, or um, in some, yeah, some sort of schematic animated form and the more, the more dynamic, the better. Um, it, like I find those to be really enjoyable and insightful. And then it's sort of like the mm-hmm. opposite of a paper where it's like only words. <laughs> and so it's, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, increasingly I just, I think it's, uh, I don't know. There's just some, there's like this deep contrast between how we talk about science. Uh, how do you give yes. a good presentation and, and then writing a paper? So um, I think it was uh, Michael White's advice. Uh, he's a nature, nature yeah. editor. I think I got this from him if I remember right, but he likes to have one figure per slide. You know, don't, don't jam a slide full of a bunch of different tiny figures. Yes. Uh, and he likes to have the title of the slide be the point of the slide, like the take home message. Yes. And I try to stick to that. Not every single figure of a slide of mine is like that, but I try to stick to that overall, you know, recipe. Because like you said, you have to think about your audience and what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to flag up that, hey, this work exists and here's the overall point of it. And if you want to go read the 70 papers that I need to cite before I can show you my work, you go read my paper, go go to my paper for all the details and for all the... The, the really in-depth part of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it serves a different purpose. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I like that you're bringing that online. That's That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I get that. Um, yeah, I don't threads. know. I, I think sometimes I'm not sure if, you know, I don't know if like that, you know, like does that mean, you know, oh, I don't need to invite Dan to give a talk because he just posted online. And it's like in some sense there's like you could argue there's reasons why you shouldn't do that because like, in, you know, that's part of our career um, mm. or how you get evaluated, I guess, or I don't know, or maybe even just like, the, yeah, have being invited to places also gives you opportunities to meet other people, like all of that stuff. So like, I don't know, I thought about that for a little while, but then I was just sort of like, I don't care. Like I, I'm, you know, I spent all this time doing this science. I think it's pretty cool. And so I want to share it. And that's kind of all that I really care about. So, well then, then the draw is let's imagine that there's not a pandemic. Then the draw is, you know, you're in the same room with people. Then the draw is like, oh, well here we can actually mix some of these ideas together and see if there's some collaboration or something that could happen. Then it's not so much about your presentation because like when I go to conferences and stuff, I get way more out of talking to individual people over coffee and stuff than I do listening to the talks. I'm sorry. I get saturated on the talks. There's so many talks. I get, I get overwhelmed. I can't absorb all of them. (laughs) So, but I, I can talk all day long. I can have conversations with people and get stuff out of those chats. Uh, you know, that, that I can do. Um, so that, I think that's the real value of those conferences is being in the same place together. Oh yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. I think that's something, yeah, I'm missing as much as I've been, uh, you know, it's nice to not have to travel as much, but I mean, now I'm really kind of missing, missing just going, sitting in a room, listening to science and then yeah, getting to talk to people and being able to just walk up to someone and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> let's talk about this. This topic sounds interesting. Yeah. Or I heard you talk about yeah. this. Let's, let's go grab a coffee and chat. So that's right. I'm guessing we're going to keep the hybrid model sort of thing moving forward yeah. where there will be, you know, some online component and some in-person component, yeah, yeah. you know, after we're all vaccinated. <laughs> right. And yeah. whatnot. I don't know. Do you yeah. think that'll be good or like, is there a value? Mm. I don't know. Good that, do you think the hybrid will be? Yeah. Good? Like it, like in the end, we'll, I'm not sure. I, mean, I don't know if you've gone, have you've had any virtual conferences experience yet? Um, 
because I, I haven't I really had EGU, too much. I tried the EGU one, yeah. um, and I think they did a good job, but I found it hard to focus on it okay, and yeah. hard to really dig into it um, because it's just another thing to do at my laptop. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of gets into the mix there. Um, I've been to some project meetings that were online. Those kind of worked nicely. One was a... Uh, they shared the posters beforehand mm-hmm. and then they had a Google doc where you could write your questions to the author in the Google doc. And then the, oh, nice. the author could respond in the Google doc to the questions. So right. you could sort of have this extended uh, discussion about the poster, you know, with the author, um, you know, for a week or so leading up to the actual presentation, which I thought like, that's okay. That part's good. That's I thought that cool. was nice actually. Cause you know what, normally you stand at the poster and you wait for the three people who were there first to get done <laughs> talking yes. and, uh, I can get to feel very impatient in those moments cause people really can dig in and talk for quite a while. Yeah. You know, even you're like standing right behind them and they're still going on and on for about 20 minutes and you're yeah. like, oh. so I can get a little impatient. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I like, I like the Google doc kind of interaction. Yeah. That's, in, in that that's appealing. I think, I mean, even for regular talks at AGU, sometimes you go and you give a talk and if you're in the middle of a session, like I think your talk can just get lost and you get no questions and you, or maybe you get one quick question and then, uh, you know, but you're one of a bunch of talks. And so maybe nobody comes up to you afterwards and say, Hey, let's go get a coffee because they went to talk to the person who gave the talk after you <laughs> or at mm. the end of the session or something like that. So I think that's, um, that actually sounds appealing as like a way to like pretend maybe that'll be a good outcome as of, of a hybrid. I wonder, I don't know. Maybe so. Yeah. If you see me looking down, I've got my notes and my little tablet over here. Cool. So I'm just looking at stuff. Um, <laughs> just on playing, my, playing on my Tetris little, over there. Uh, I just can't stop. I've been addicted for about 30 years now. <laughs> um, and it's the only thing I do on Fridays. It's, uh, <laughs> I just get stuck in a Tetris loop. <laughs> uh, do we want to talk about a paper of yours? <laughs> sure. Talk about. Uh, so I noticed just looking at your website, you have one about uh, hurricanes on a thermally uniform Earth-like aquaplanet, yeah. which is right up my alley. That sounds really cool. Cool. Can I hear about that from from you? That would be awesome. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool paper. It's definitely. It's probably my the thing I'm most proud of so far in my career. Um, Yeah. But the kind of basic context was um, well, so the science was, yeah, we took what those words were. We took the aqua, uh, took an aqua planet and, um, but not a regular aqua planet. We made it so that the incoming solar radiation was constant all over the planet and the sea surface temperatures. This is just an atmosphere only model. So the more important part was the sea surface temperatures were just um, uniform on the whole planet. So we removed the um, kind of what I think of as the externally forced thermodynamic variability that comes from a sphere rotating around a star, um, which gives you, it makes it warmer at the equator than at the poles. Um and looked at, and so what that ends up doing is it, like in our real world, um, our super complicated world, uh, we have lots of different weather phenomena um, in the tropics versus the extra tropics. We have a jet stream, um, and then we also have land that introduces zonal uh, asymmetries. And so you take all that out, um, and you make it what I think of as kind of thermodynamically like the tropics. Um, when, and so, Everywhere. and that's a, that's an atmosphere that's, that Everywhere. the hurricanes love. So, huh. so there's insulation for, like from the theoretical sun uniformly coming in from all directions. Exactly. Right. Which is, so it's, 
which it's is like not possible. <laughs> but yes. It's surrounded by stars. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a cool thing. So we weren't the first to do this. So there's a couple of other mm. um, groups. Uh, Tim Rillis has done this before. Uh, um, but there's a, yeah, a couple of the groups that have done this. So, but it was, it's a world that, um, yeah, the sun shines the same everywhere. And what I like to think of it is it's sort of an imaginary world. And this is something that I enjoy. Mm. I like to think about using models to create a map, like, uh, like we've often used the word idealized, which I think is completely fine as well. Um, but idealized, I, I kind of distinguish as you can make something idealized by saying, you know, if you remove land, it's idealized because mm-hmm. the, you sort of, you haven't broken any laws of physics. Um, you haven't like changed anything fundamentally. You're just saying, well, suppose there wasn't land here, but that's totally plausible. But then, um, I like to think about imaginary worlds as worlds like this, where like the sun for a sphere going around a star, the sun isn't going to shine the same everywhere. It's just physically not Mm -hmm. possible, but you can do it in a model. You can decide where the solar insulation is coming in. Uh, and so, and you might be able to, that might be really useful, um, to test hypotheses. So in this case, we were looking at, um, this type of world produces um, lots and lots of hurricanes. Um, and uh, and so at first glance, if you look, you'll see lots of hurricanes. Uh, they actually end up uh, mostly at high latitudes, which looks very different Ooh. than the real Earth. Um, oh, really? But the the idea is that actually what happens in this world is that um, so in the real world hurricanes form at low latitudes in the tropics um, and then they move poleward and westward with time um, just naturally uh, vortex on a sphere will do that and um, but then in the real world they go over land or they go over cold water and so they die so which are Mm -hmm. really in the end both mostly thermodynamic um, reasons for why they they die, um, but if you remove the land and you make the water the same temperature everywhere, um, you remove that thermodynamic reason for them to die. Um, and I guess the third one too mm-hmm. is the jet stream, along with this temperature gradient, is that the jet stream also um, interferes with the dynamics of a hurricane, and so we remove that as well. And so so instead of dying as they move northward like they do on Earth, they just or I say poleward, um, they they just sort of pile up at high latitudes. Um, and they don't actually, they don't merge into a giant cyclone. Um, they, they're, they just kind of dance around each other and you get lots of hurricanes there. But so this world, the key thing was that this world, uh, still has hurricanes that form at low latitudes like they do on earth. And so, um, and they, and they do so in kind of a zonally uniform way. And so it ended up being a world where I think about it as, uh, like a, a background we we like to understand hurricanes on the real earth and hurricanes have both a uh kind of a dynamical and a thermodynamic um uh or dynamic and thermodynamic factors from the large scale environment that are important for them to form and so um <clears throat> what we're doing is saying well what if what is kind of the background dynamical dependence of hurricanes on a rotating planet where we remove this thermodynamic variability hmm. um and and what it allows us to do is to isolate basically how hurricanes formation um, and and um, hurricane size uh, depends on the basically the there's two fundamental dynamical parameters for a rotating sphere, which is the rotation rate and the size of the planet. And so we were able to um, re- test some hypotheses about um 
what what hurricanes depend on dynamically from from the planet the rotating planet uh and 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 also do things like test how far from the so we know hurricanes don't form on the equator um because Mm -hmm. they can't they they there's zero um planetary vorticity there or zero angular momentum however you want to think about it um and so we know they need to be some some distance from the equator but how far from the equator do they need to be so um so it's, it ends up hmm. like the kind of long story short is just like it's a it ended up being a place and i can say this is not we didn't go in like being like these are the clear hypotheses by any means it ended up <laughs> kind of getting to this point which i think yeah. always happens in science um we lie about how we know, how we figure things out, but uh, um, yeah, it's just like there's some basic, basic fundamental uh, dynamical controls of hurricanes in the real world that are important to understanding how hurricanes work on Earth today or in a future climate um, that had never really been tested in any physical context. We can actually we estimate them empirically. We say, oh, they depend on the Coriolis parameter, um, and so they go into these empirical indices for governing how hurricanes like the rate at which hurricanes form, for example. Um, but then we, uh, but we, we never really tested them. And a big part of it was that uh, the real world is just super complicated, especially thermodynamically. So this is a way to end up removing all of that and simplifying things greatly. And then being able to do some experiments to say, well, okay, what if I yes. make the planet rotate twice as fast? Or what if I made yeah. the planet twice as big? And can we test some mm-hmm. theories um, f- governing, um, like how hurricanes work on a rotating planet like ours. Yeah. I, I've said it before in the podcast, but that reminds me of, you know, Isaac Held has this now classic paper, right? About hierarchical modeling. Yep. So what you're talking about is the, some of the lower levels of the hierarchy where you have removed a lot of the sources of complexity so that you can just study the, the fundamental, a simplified version of your system. And that helps you get intuition. David Marshall likes to say that it helps you sharpen the questions. It helps sharpen your intuition, sharpens your questions. And you can maybe ask more better formulated questions, you know, as a result of playing with this idealized model. So I'm a big fan of that approach. Uh, I think it, it's uh, it's really satisfying um, from a applied math kind of perspective and from a physics kind of perspective and, and it's really satisfying when they can explain real-world variability to some extent. Yeah. Uh, it can help you get a handle on some of those concepts. So I guess that's – is that work potentially useful for exoplanet research, you know, the kind of things that you've found? Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. something um, I, I went to – this is now last fall. Um, so again, kind of as I – we had published this paper and this actually even goes back to the question about why YouTube presentations is that I find I often, I learn more about my own research after it's published. There's things that I (laughs) realize like, Oh, I did not understand like why this Mm. was interesting or why this could be applied in this context. So, so that paper was published earlier last year. And then um, later last year in 2019, I, in the middle of the, or somebody had, like kind of at the same time, I started realizing like, huh, so this imaginary world where the sun shines everywhere is actually more, when we fix the sea surface temperatures everywhere, it's actually more like an internally heated planet. And that's actually maybe not an imaginary thing. It's a real thing. Um, and I don't know anything about exoplanets. Um, but around the same time, I, I started thinking like, okay, maybe exoplanet people would be interested in this. 
Uh, and then um, a colleague in my department, so I'm in an Earth Atmosphere Planetary Science Department, uh, my planetary colleague, David Mitten, forwarded an email to me saying, hey, there's this exoplanet. I think that it was the Lake Michigan Exoplanet Workshop, which was at University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. This little workshop that the U Chicago hosts, I think, every year. Um, and he forwarded this, and you know, I looked at the they were soliciting people, and so I just emailed. Um, uh, the, there's a postdoc, Tad um, Komasek, who's there, who is I think organizing it, and I said, "Hey, I have this work on hurricanes on." kind of these funky planets, I feel like this mm. might be interesting to exoplanet people. And so he said, yeah, come yeah. give a talk. And so I gave a talk and I let off the first thing. I was just like, I, my first slide was, I don't know anything about exoplanets because I just don't. Mm-hmm. I was like, but I do this thing with Earth with Earth models where I, I simplify them and I change them in ways that I realized might kind of accidentally be exoplanet research or at least exoplanet mm. relevant. Um, <laughs> accidentally. Um, yeah. And so... Uh, and so, yeah, it was fun. Um, and it was a little intimidating because, like, I just don't, I don't know. I've actually always been afraid of space. I just think there's, you know, grow up, I thought there were just aliens out there and they were trying to abduct me. So I, I don't mm-hmm. actually know anything about space. But I, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so after that, I gave this talk and then Tad um, the and and um, a couple other folks at this workshop said, oh, you should really think about this for tidally locked planets. And so um, I've done some work since then. We published a paper. Um, I worked with Tad and with uh, Dorian Abbott um, looking at tidally. They had started to look at um, the environments supportive of hurricanes potentially in tidally locked exoplanets. Um, yes. And so, or I should say, they had done this generally for tidally locked exoplanets, just looking at the circulation and then you know, it just became very obvious, like, oh, we could very quickly look and look at the parameters we think of um, that are as being important for exit for hurricanes on Earth and apply them to these exoplanet simulations to see if, you know, is it possible that there could be hurricanes on exoplanets? So, hmm. um, yeah, and so we published a paper recently on that. Uh, and so that's been super cool and, and taken me, I mean, I still uh, have to think a lot to wrap my head around these like very different types of planetary systems. Um, but it's, you know, I've gotten to think about these very different systems yeah. and from the exoplanet side, it's cool. Cause also well, I guess uh, to me, there's like an interesting two way street that the exoplanet side, if you're interested in exoplanets, you have very little data. So you really have to rely strongly on the one planet that we do have a lot of data for, <laughs> which is our planet. Um, yes. and then for me, I like to think of if, you know, if we can test our theories in very different worlds, um, that gives us a chance to find out whether we really know what we're talking about uh, mm-hmm. um, or not. And so it's like mm-hmm. a nice way to test hypotheses about the real earth um, uh, and, or theories or hypotheses about the real earth uh, that we used to describe the real earth in very different contexts and, and really push our, our limits to see what we know or don't know. I wonder when we'll first detect the, uh, detect the first, uh, exoplanet hurricane you know maybe 2172 or something (laughs) yeah (laughs) well that was what i was trying to find out was if anybody thought (laughs) like because that's again i don't know anything about these systems you know would we be able to see anything and i think it sounds like it's very unlikely we would detect uh, an actual hurricane but the uh, one possibility is that hurricanes loft water vapor very high up into the into the atmosphere and so um if that is a significant source, like if there's a way to detect um, high altitude, like above the, mm. the tropo- troposphere, the weather layer, as they call it in the planetary community, um, like there might be an opportunity to detect 
water vapor signatures at high altitude. And so maybe there'd be some relationship there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you could detect some signature of the existence of hurricanes, a fingerprint of the existence of hurricanes on that planet. Exactly. Um, yeah, a very indirect kind of detective work, which, uh, a lot of astronomy is like that. A lot of astrophysics is like that because even though we have, you know, some amazing, telescopes and amazing receivers that can do quite a lot. Um, you know, a lot of that logic and deduction is still quite indirect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we think this exists because we noticed this other compound and, right. you know, you, you have to ch- you do quite a chain of logic sometimes to, to make an argument. I wanted to react to something you said where that you only learn about your own research after you publish it. Yeah. And I, I really like that statement because, uh, I kind of, I know what you mean, you know, you do a bit of work and you put it out there and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it's really fun when like a colleague comes up to you and they'll say like, oh, well, you know, you showed back in 2014 that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I did. (laughs) I guess I did. No, you're right. That's, that's what that showed. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'll have, you know, students also come up, yeah, and say, you know, in this figure, yeah, you you, you did this thing. And I'll be like, really? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, let me go back. I like, I have to go back and look because I don't remember. <laughs> so <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I don't know if maybe there's people, I don't know if you feel like you, how often when you write a paper, you know, it's fully understood at the end versus, because like, I feel like if you really waited like sometimes there's an itch where you're just like, there's something else still to learn here. But obviously if you always wait to, till you learn everything that you think you should learn, you might never publish anything and then nobody mm-hmm. learns anything. Um, yeah. I think it's exciting. You put something out there and you kind of see what the community thinks of it yeah. and you see what it inspires, hopefully in the community, yeah. you know, hopefully they run off and hopefully they build on it or, do some additional kind of thinking around it. And, uh, so yeah, I guess it might actually be kind of depressing if you put something out there, if you've, if you fully understood all the implications, yeah. then I guess there's not any room to grow on that. Right. Uh, to, so yeah, it's kind of, it's nice that we don't totally understand. And I also like the part you mentioned that we sort of craft the narrative after the fact, right. That right. it's really not very common to go into a bit of research with, three or four clear hypotheses. I mean, sometimes it happens, but um, I think the people who look at our grant applications and who fund us kind of want to believe that we're always doing that, that we're always like, I have a very clear hypothesis and (laughs) I will test it using this method. Um, But that's pretty rare. Usually, I mean, a lot of science is exploratory. You just, you see what comes up, Um, you know, you you kind of try to look for inspiration. There's much more of like a kind of weird artistic creative thing that happens where you yes. just play with it and you see what, what you get inspired by looking at the data. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idealized models are especially nice for that kind of, kind of playground. Um, how about the, uh, there's this 2017 paper, the physical understanding of the tropical cyclone wind pressure relationship. I know that probably feels like ancient news now, but is there anything you want to say about that? No. One? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's another one. It was something, I mean, the science was just, uh, so for hurricanes, we, 
So when you say category um, one, two, three, four, five for hurricanes, um, or you know, in different basins, they have different scales. It's, um, I think, it's uniformly uh, referring to the maximum wind speed in the hurricane. Um, but there's an alternative measure of how strong a hurricane is that people have used also for decades. It's just like no longer technically the official one, which is the it's the so at the center of the storm, the pressure is low, and so the minimum pressure at the center of the storm. Um, and so people often, when they say looking in data or in in uh, models, they'll plot what's called the wind pressure relationship, which, and it has some statistical relationship where they're pretty well correlated, but they're never perfectly correlated. Um, and so there had been some empirical understanding that um, of how. Uh, the other factors that that play into uh, making the central pressure lower or higher relative to the what you would expect for a given maximum wind speed, um, but uh, we were able to uh, kind of show um, theoretically how those are related um, and combine it with uh, this. I have a model for the wind field and a hurricane. That's kind of the, the link between the two. Um, is that the pressure, the central pressure is really kind of an integrated measure of the wind field in a, in a specific mm -hmm. way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we were just able to combine this kind of basic theoretical understanding to explain how the central pressure depends on the maximum wind speed and then also this this other velocity scale that's basically a combination of the stor storm size and the Coriolis parameter. Um, and then we, mm. and then we had fun with it and said, why don't we just test this in this, um, actually going back to, you'd mentioned Isaac's Held's paper. And, um, I mean, I, that is a deep motivation for everything that I do, um, oh, is to say, why don't we test this in a hierarchy of models? We can use these, these aqua planet models that are covered where they have lots of hurricanes and it's covered in, in water that's the same temperature and it gives you lots of hurricanes. And at the time it was like, well, this is really convenient. If we want to test something about a, hur a hurricane, why don't we do it in this world that produces thousands of hurricanes um mm -hmm. and so and then we can do it in the same model for that is simulating the real world um and so it's the same model in both a simplified world and in the real world which actually is really mm -hmm. nice too because it removes the the you know every model is different and sometimes very different um in how they represent uh processes and and even kind of the the large-scale climate and so um yeah so we tested this this theoretical understanding of an individual hurricane in a large set of hurricanes produced by different climate, uh, kind of these very different climate systems. Um, hmm. So yeah, and it was cool. And it just, we could show very clearly that we could predict using two parameters. Um, we could predict the central pressure and, and explain exactly and, or kind of like demonstrate why theoretically um, the central pressure and, and maximum wind speed are related to each other and how storm size uh, pl um, plays into that. So um, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was cool. Mm. Um, and that, the, I mean, I think the, the most exciting thing in that, the actually uh, final conclusion of that was that at the time, um, a con there is a, uh, on the economic side of, of kind of disasters, uh, there was a paper that had come out, I think in 2016, um, pointing out that the central pressure seems to be a better predictor of the economic damage than the maximum wind speed. Oh, right. And so this, our paper was able to give a very clear physical understanding for that, which is just that the central pressure, like I said, it's an integrated measure of the wind speed, wind field. So yes. a hurricane yes. can actually have the same maximum wind speed, but be very big or very small. There's like an order of mm -hmm. magnitude 
um, range of variability in storm size that's really independent of storm maximum wind speed. And so you might imagine intuitively that if you had some maximum wind speed in a hurricane, but that hurricane was twice as large, it's probably mm-hmm. going to cause more damage. Um, and so yeah. the central pressure is actually going to tell you, it's going to combine information about both the maximum wind speed and the size of the storm. So a bigger storm will have a, a lower pressure at the center, even for the same maximum wind speed. Um, right, right. And so we kind of said this in words um, in the paper that, hey, like this seems to give a very clear physical explanation of why the central pressure might be a better metric of kind of damage potential is because it combines both the maximum wind speed, which we usually think of as the first order thing that causes damage. The stronger winds, you're going to have more damage, but um, you can also have a bigger storm and that can cause more Mm -hmm. damage. And it also causes greater storm surge, more precipitation. So it's not just the winds. Um, this kind of makes me think about the, this is the tilt of the pressure surface on the scale of the hurricane. This is kind of what it makes me think of. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's in the end, it's that, yeah, the wind speed is related to the rate of change of pressure with radius. So yeah, you can think of yeah. it as, yeah, the, the tilt of the pressure surface. <laughs> yeah. But, and the reason that I use that, so I do a lot of work in the Southern ocean yeah. and we often talk about the tilt of the density surfaces. Oh, yeah. Is, you know, the the greater the tilt of those density surfaces, the stronger the geostrophic current yeah. is that's associated with that, and also the stronger the uh, the eddy field tends to be yeah. because it's baroclinically unstable. To throw some jargon around, sure, yeah. um, that just means unstable for the listeners. That just means like it's a fluid that's unstable in a way that changes with depth. <laughs> that's really all that means. Um, so often the kind of tilt of the pressure surface, you can use that as a way to think about the strength of the Antarctic circumpolar current. So it kind of, that, what you just said kind of matches roughly with my GFD intuition about like, yeah, if you have a big old tilt (laughs) on your pressure surface, uh, then that overall will be kind of a, there's more, uh, I guess there's more potential energy there in a way. There's kind of that, the potential energy associated with the tilt of the surface. Yeah, Uh, I guess. Maybe I'm bringing... Maybe I'm bringing too much of my ocean brain. I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess you, I mean, we don't think about it that way. I'm not sure. So, I mean, in your case, the tilt adds makes things more unstable. In this case, it's actually it's like so. You mentioned there's the geostrophic flow. In this case, for hurricane, mm-hmm. it's it's a gradient wind balance. So it's yeah. an- analogous, yeah. and that's that is the hurricane flow. It's not an unstable flow though. So, right. Um, right. so I don't know if. Oh, I'm glad I said that because that highlights some of the differences there. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the gradient wind flow, remind me, that includes the, it's got it's got a cold Coriolis term in there. Yep. And then yeah, it also has it. a centrifugal acceleration. So since it's a very right, tightly right. rotating system, um, now the centrifugal acceleration is on the same order as the um, Coriolis and the pressure gradient. So, so you get right, that third right, term yeah. on top of geostrophic. It's been a while since I looked at my Holton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For large yeah. scale flows. Yeah. We usually don't even really think about the, uh, the, um, centrifugal. And I guess in the ocean that really must not be very important ever. I would guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> not uh, it doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't really come up. I think just, yeah, the, uh, the speeds are, pr- are slower. Yeah. Slower, right. So it doesn't really come up, um, in that, in that way. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm, I'm glad I slightly misspoke because that gave us a chance to highlight that difference there. Yeah. Some of the dynamical differences that, yeah, 
you know, that, um, it's all GFD, it's all fluids, but there's many different scales. Yeah. Uh, and the density affects things and the, the time scales affect things. Uh, this, I'm going to mention somebody and I'm only mentioning them. I'm going to be up front with you. I'm mentioning them because I want to tell an anecdote about this person. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's short though. It doesn't take that long. So I was going to ask if you know, um, you probably do Wayne, Wayne Schubert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big uh, theoretical hurricane researcher mm-hmm. in your your broad field. So um, I did my PhD out at Colorado State, oh, yeah, right. where you know he was he was a professor, and that's where I studied my Holton textbook. And I, I should have remembered the gradient wind balance thing from my <laughs> <laughs> from my time there. But anyway, I uh, was in a, his office one day, and uh, I watched him sketch out something and work through a little bit of mathematics, you know, pencil and paper because. He does do computational stuff, but he's an old school mm-hmm. uh, pencil and paper mathematician. When he wants to be, he can. He definitely has that skill set. And I watched him derive something or work out something. And he, I forget exactly what it was, but you know, he mentioned some limit of this derivation and said, and then the equation go right back to this other form. And he let out this like, I may have told this on the podcast before, so my apologies to my listeners. I can't remember, but he let out like a really nice laugh. Like he was really amused. He was like, isn't that cool? <laughs> isn't that neat? And in that moment, I just felt like, oh, I want to be this guy when I like, I want to be like him. I want to like continue to get just joy oh, yeah. from mathematics and from the work that I get to do. And the, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you, I guess you can't feel like that all the time. Sometimes you have to write the grant applications and you have to right. <laughs> do the admin thing. But that's that's kind of a career goal for me, I think, is this, if I can keep enjoying it yeah. on that level. Um, yeah, no, that's And great. I guess that, that joy kind of can spark the creativity a bit, I think, as well, if you're genuinely interested in it. Um, so all of this has been a way to ask you a leading question about, like, what are some things that you do to kind of keep those creativity fires going to keep those creativity fires burning? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I do a lot. I think a lot outside of science. So sometimes I feel like, uh, I, I find that the creative process, which I enjoy feels a lot more like art than science. Like, like Mm. I said, I like to think about imaginary worlds. I like to sit and think and imagine, um, especially on like, really basic topics that maybe you think you understand and you can think a lot more and you find out you really never understood it. And actually that has actually come out as much in in teaching than in research where you have to, you try to explain something and I struggle a lot with not with it, with skipping a step where I'm like, a has to go to B and I don't understand why a isn't going to B and, and, uh, dive into that. So, um, So I don't, I mean, I don't have anything specific other than, uh, uh, like I just, I take a lot of inspiration from art and from creative music and, and, uh, um, movies, uh, and really anything that's actually outside of science that gets you to think differently, because I find that, um, the most, even going what you were saying about joy, the most joy comes from discovering to me, discovering that things that you think you know or that everybody thinks they know is not Mm. quite what it seems and to do that you have to get out of your current mindset (laughs) you have to like 
start over or deconstruct. And this even ties in with what, you know, why do we deconstruct? I think about the hierarchy of models as deconstructing mm. things. Um, yeah. And, and I guess I think that's oftentimes what like art does is we, you know, like something as silly as, you know, when you, and, you know, if you see a, a piece of art, that's just like abstract art, like what, why is abstract art interesting um, is because you, it makes you see the world in a very different way or, or in a way, or, or you, you see it in a way that you're like, huh, I never, you know, like, why is it that these three strokes of, of color, make me yeah. feel a certain way or remind yeah. me of something. Um, and so that's kind of, that itself is very abstract, but I just, I, I try to, um, I, I, I look for a lot of inspiration in that. I love seeing art in any form that makes me think like, huh, <laughs> and makes me, mm -hmm. takes me to a place that I never thought about before in any context, uh, because I find that that usually is what happens when you yeah. discover something um, uh, that you, th you know, something new, like, I don't know how you discover new things. When you discover new things, I feel like it's because you have to, you have to deconstruct or reject old things. So I love that. Yeah. I love that. And I also love highlighting the idea that, you know, there is this fundamentally creative engine to science that it isn't just number crunching and it isn't just, you know, going into a lab and turning a crank yeah. that, uh, that's an important part of it. That's kind of how we ground ourselves back to reality, but the lens through which we view that reality, uh, has been, we've, we've built it, yeah. we've constructed it. And that construction process has to be informed by inspiration. It has to be informed by some drive to like, I want to see the world through this lens or that lens and see if I can fit everything through this picture uh, and see if I can make my concepts like line up with what I see in the world. Right. Um, so in a way, I think we could think of science as just a, a very highly constrained creative process, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like art is pretty unconstrained relatively, you know, like whatever you can do mm -hmm. that, that can potentially be art. Um, if you, um, I mean, really, it's kind of, it's kind of wide open. Um, I mean, there's, there's a joke on that show, uh, Parks and Rec. I think Ron Swanson at some point, he takes a picture of the floor or a bench or something. And he says, uh, it's art. Anything is anything. Yeah. And like, I guess he, it's kind of taken as like a dismissive moment, but he's kind of not wrong. It's, it's yeah. kind of fully, it's kind of fully unconstrained and whatever you, you know, you want it to be, it can potentially be. Yeah. So science on the other end of that is not the opposite of creativity. Instead, it's just a very highly constrained kind of creativity yeah. <laughs> where in the end of the day, we have a physical world where that we need to understand and that ideally we would be able to predict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think, uh, related to what you just said, I love the Ron Swanson quote. I may mean, have, uh, I have an Andy Warhol mug that in it inscribed is, is a quote from him saying art is what you can get away with. Um, <laughs> and it's the same, same sentiment. I mean, Ron Swanson, um, basically our, uh, our, our present day Andy Warhol, I guess. Um, but like, but yeah, I think, I think the constraints, I think what's interesting to me is the constraints, what I like, you know, this uh, thinking about uh, imaginary worlds and 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 how like there's constraints in how things are related to each other, but there aren't constraints in the parameters of 
this, you know, a system, I guess, like, or maybe the external parameters, like, like there's no constraint on how bright the sun is. If you, hmm. you can make it whatever you want. Like, I mean, maybe there, this is where, maybe there is a universal constraint. Like there's, you know, energy, an amount of energy in the universe and that's yeah. conserved, yeah. yada, yada. But like when you, you know, and this is why models are so great. It's like you, you, in the end, you you decide the bounds of that system, and in that system, you know the sun, how much how strong the sun is, is the or how bright the sun is, is is an external parameter, and so now you can just mm. there's mm. no constraint on that, and so you can like there are constraints, but there's lots of things that are unconstrained about how you arrange the pieces within the system, and I think that's that's where it does become art when you don't have constraints, mm-hmm. like you were saying, I like what, yeah. how you described it. When you don't have constraints, it's just art. You can decide whatever you want. And mm. um, for, you know, you can decide it because you're testing a very specific hypothesis or you could decide it because it would be cool. And because mm-hmm. maybe it, just like an artist, you do a thing and I, you, you probably don't know why you're just like, feel like you should do it. And then you do it and yeah. then you learn something afterwards. <laughs> Um, and so I guess the scientists, I wonder how much we do that, but then we lie and pretend like we started off knowing that that's exactly where we were going to go, but we didn't really. Um, yeah, I think usually the narrative comes afterwards that, you know, I guess it depends on partly how the work was funded. Right. I mean, sometimes you, you get funded through a, a relatively narrow route because I guess from the funders perspective, they don't necessarily want to give you a bunch of cash to run off and be creative. They want you to promise a specific product that they can then, that you can then show that you're benefiting humanity in some concrete, concrete way, right. uh, some additional economic value or something like that. And you could understand where that perspective comes from, although it's a little bit on the, the bean counter side of things. Um, and by bean counter, I don't really mean that in a terribly derogatory way. I understand where that comes from but it is a different way of seeing the world when you are saying everything must be tied to an economic you know gain or an economic advantage right. or um you know that there, there can be value in that in that creativity i think this conversation is helping me understand why like i don't really feel compelled to go into fully operational science yeah. i really respect those folks and that's the super important part but you know operational um meteorology and oceanography, you know, they're trying to make the weather predictions and the predictions about what the ocean's going to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess it's pretty constrained because, you know, they have the initial conditions, they have the equations of, of motion and the, equa- the heat equation and things like that, and they predict the next steps based on that. So it's pretty heavily constrained. There's not a ton of room for, for creativity in there. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not being fair. Maybe there is lots of room. Um, there's certainly lots of choices about how to present that information, how to visualize it. Um, and that's important, isn't it? Like how do we visually communicate our information? Um, even if there's not, if you don't have much of a choice in the specific where that information kind of comes from the process that generates it, we have lots of choices in how to display it. Um, yeah. So that, that was a fun discussion. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That's cool to hear your I thoughts on that. that too. So I like the, I like the, the idea of constraints and the role of constraints. I think that's actually a really, really great way to think about it. It does make me jealous for artists. That's where I'm like, oh man, mm. like what if there just weren't any rules? <laughs> like why do there have to be any rules at all? But you know, um, I don't know. So, <laughs> uh, 
I guess the total lack of constraints can be scary. I mean, it's true. you know, imagine being told, I guess if you're an artist, then the scary thing is, uh, okay, there are no constraints. Um, you can do whatever you like, but if nobody feels anything when they look at your stuff, you're probably not going to be really relevant. Right. And, <laughs> you know, you're, you're probably going to struggle a bit. Right. Um, and when there are no constraints, it's hard to tell, like, well, what's going to work? That's true. What's, what are people going to respond to? I guess, yeah, I guess um, I think maybe for artists, I mean, they do have constraints right there. We have our eyes and our ears and our nose. Mm. It's you know, like we have ways we perceive the world and you have materials and whatnot that, yeah. uh, like, I, I guess maybe, maybe the point is, you know, I don't know if artists, when art is interesting, it's like discovering constraints in some way or discovering relationships mm. um you know because there aren't rules um whereas like we do have the physical laws so we like to think that we know what they are although i think that even is somewhat unique to our field i know i talked to someone who does like high altitude what you call like exosphere research and they're like the equation of there's no equation of state and mm. so it's just like a very yeah. difficult field to study like in our field i feel like we actually have i don't know i think oceanography i mean you're you're like the equation of state is fairly well constrained um it's kind of a monster but it is it is reasonably well constrained yeah and so the full thing is kind of the full thing is kind of a mess yeah Uh, but yeah so yeah i don't know so it's like maybe we're lucky that we get to um like we we know what our pieces are at least, <laughs> whereas like maybe in other fields and then even in art, it's like you don't even know what your pieces are that you're working with for your puzzle in the first place. So you have yeah. to figure out what they are. But anyways, that's true. And you're right that we're being slightly hyperbolic by saying art has no constraints, yeah. but it was just a useful concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it has less constraints you know, definitely. Yeah. So I think that's I think yeah. it's cool. I think it's a cool concept to think about. So, well, do we want to talk about your kind of pathway? Sure into science. So, um, where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and so my pathway was very early on in my life when I, one of my very first memories, um, was when I was four and there was a thunderstorm and a tree fell on my house. Um, Mm. Oh gosh. So yeah, so I was in the basement. Um, so I've actually only very recently gone back and found out that this was June 3rd, 1990. So I was four and I had to deduce that I had never thought to actually go back and figure out exactly which date this was. Um, my parents didn't remember. And so I went back, but it was very obvious that there was only one, I knew, I knew how old I was and, uh, um, there was really only one major wind event that happened that Mm -hmm. year in Madison. Um, and so, yeah, so tree fell in my house. I was in the basement, um, and it sounded like all the windows in the house shattered, but um, none of them actually did. The tree didn't, like, crash through the roof, uh, but it was very large and l- spanned across the house. And uh, um, and it was all the – I think it was all the shingles shattering um, uh, the sound. Hmm. So, But I remember that very distinctly. So it kind of crashed onto the roof, and it didn't go through the house, but it – impacted the top of the house and made a huge sound basically. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, I think we had to get, I'm pretty sure we had to get a new roof, but it didn't crash through Mm -hmm. the roof, but you could see the tree on both sides of the house. So, um, that was a very, it was a very tall tree that fell. I mean, maybe it was like a large, like half of the tree or something like that. But, uh, (laughs) um, 
Yes, I remember. And you could see it from the middle of the house. Like you could see out the window that there was this tree, large tree limb. And then you could look out if you walked a few feet on the other side through the window, you could see the the leaves of the tree hanging over the other side of the house. So um, So a very early impactful experience. Yeah, yeah. Which is a thing that a lot of, so like I, it made me a, Actually, I was really just terrified of the weather growing up, but also obsessed with it. Um, so it was a very mm. fear-driven interest in in, in, mm. uh, in atmospheric science, which is a common thing I found a lot of. Um, like I was a super weather weenie as a kid, and a lot of mm. a lot of um, huge weather nerds be um, that they have some origin story that often involves fear of some some event at that stage in life. Um, but not everybody. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got into the weather. Um, I was obsessed with it as a little kid uh through grade school um and then i liked i I liked math uh and so uh but those were just kind of in parallel when i got into high school i actually kind of i was always still loved the weather but i didn't i kind of stopped being completely obsessed with it um and yeah just liked kind of grew to like math and physics i went to wisconsin university of wisconsin for undergrad Hmm. um and actually went in as an engineer uh, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I had a semester of engineering classes, uh, just kind of introductory ones and kind of thought, oh, I don't know, I don't really love this. And I realized, well, Wisconsin has an atmospheric science program. And I was like, well, I always love the weather. And I guess I can apply math and physics to that. So maybe I should do that. Um, yeah, you can. So yeah, so I, so I switched <laughs> into atmospheric science and was also an applied math major. Um and yeah, I just love that. Got to study the weather, which was cool. Um, and then went to. So sorry, was that the one in Madison? Yeah, in Madison. Said, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I know somebody who just started as a, a professor there not too long oh, ago. Oh, nice. Yeah, who's cool. That, who's that? Cool. Um, St- uh, Steph Slade. Oh, okay. I think is where oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, yeah, we were both at Colorado State right. at that's the same right. time. I think I think that's where she is. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, I haven't seen. <laughs> I think that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, apologies to Steph if I've gotten your <laughs> institute wrong. Uh, I do know you're working somewhere in that part of the country. And <laughs> sorry if I've gotten the specific one wrong. <laughs> um, do you mind if I ask what were your folks up to? So my dad is a is an agricultural economics professor at Wisconsin, um, yeah. and then my mom is an actuary. So so they moved to Madison uh, before I was born, a few years before I was born. Um, for my dad, my dad's hmm. job to be a professor at Wisconsin. Yeah. So. Were they uh, pretty supportive of the atmospheric science kind of trajectory? Did that? Oh yeah, make yeah. Sense certainly. To them? They, I mean, my mom always would, you know, tell me you got to get a job, go go to school, learn math, you can get a job. Like she was an actuary, so she, you know, mm-hmm. was, uh, numbers. Both my parents obviously were very numbers oriented. So, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't remember. I'm sure they just thought I was an insane kid who was just like completely weather obsessed. Uh, but they, I remember, you know, I got to meet my local TV meteorologist um, when I was, I think when I was seven or eight, maybe went to the weather oh, nice. office, which was yeah. cool. Um, hmm. So yeah, so they've always, you know, I, I don't, I guess I don't remember them ever, certainly ever discouraging me from from pursuing that. So I think they definitely pushed me into. Uh, math and uh, or math, I would say for the most part, is like I have to learn math, learn math. So, yeah, because it's a good foundation. If you've got that, there's a lot of different things you can do with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's good. So that was your undergrad there in Madison. Yep. Yeah, 
and how about after that, where'd you so head off to next? After that, I took a year off. Um, and mm-hmm. so at the time, late in my, so, um, let's see. So my junior year of, of college for semester, I lived in France and I studied abroad and that was a very kind of life changing experience. I kind of went into that just, uh, you know, I liked school, but I, I, I don't, I hadn't really thought about anything outside of school mm. and just having fun. And, uh, when I came had back, you left Madison much before that, did I like or Madison? One of the, what had you, had you left it very many times? Oh. I guess you said you moved there and you kind of did, did your undergrad there. And I was wondering if you had done much, much travel yeah, before that, so, or if that was, a fair amount. So my dad is from France, actually. So we would okay. go to, we went to France growing up, um, kind of every two to four years. Um, so we took a visit my family there and then my mom's side of the family, my mom's from the Philippines. Uh, so she, um, so she had family in California and still does. So we would go to California a fair amount. So yeah, so we did, a, I did a fair amount of travel, um, just with family okay. and family trips. So um, so your last name is French then, I guess. Yes, my last is name it? is French, yeah. Chavez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although people yeah. usually think it's Hispanic and call me Chavez, um, especially because I tend <laughs> to look more Hispanic than other things. So, um, so uh, but Dan, Dan Chavez. Chavez, yes. <laughs> Chavez. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, so I... Uh, so yeah, so I studied when I went to France, that was the first time living anywhere else. Um, so I lived, I studied abroad in France and then came back and was very engaged in, in the world and very suddenly, very, very interested in, in, in everything actually, to be honest. Um, in, well, let's, let's not zip past France. What'd you, what'd you do? Oh, what did I do in France? Like oh, I lived in, France, in, in yeah. uh, in South central <laughs> France in a town called Montpellier and I lived with a, a wonderful host family there. Um, and then. Um, so I, I took classes there. Um, but I, uh, it actually, the, it was, so France is known for going on strike and it was, uh, mm. it was a big strike year for the okay. universities and our university was one of the first to go on strike and one of the last to <laughs> stop going on strike. So it was kind of, uh, it was a unique French experience, uh, but it was kind of like a half semester, um, of classes. And then, um, yeah, so it was, but it was, I mean, mostly the cultural experience was the, what was really amazing. And, I really feel so yeah. lucky to have gotten to do that. And did you have relatives there? So I do. Yeah. And I visited them a couple of times. Um, so yeah, they live. So my dad grew up in this tiny village called Pelusin, um, which is in, um, in South central France, um, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit east of center. Uh, it's a, a small farm village. So he grew up on a farm. Um, and my uncle, his brother still owns the farm. And my cousin, I think now has taken over the farm. So they have some cows, um, mm-hmm. and, and other things. It's a small, small, uh, farm that they run there. So, um, so your dad turned it into a full academic, yeah. academic pursuits in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, it's, he's, his life story is really kind of crazy. Um, but he, he was supposed to be the one who ran the farm. That was the plan all along. But then, um, so 1968, there was like a mini revolution in France and it allowed him to go to the community college, which then he eventually was able to go to university. And then he ended up um, in the military uh, and lived in Madagascar and Burkina Faso and these other places. And then mm. eventually um, went to grad school. Um, he met my mom in, in the university of Missouri for when they were both there for grad school. So, which my dad claims he picked um, because he looked on a map and saw they grew rice in Missouri. And so he should go there. He's like, I got to see this. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I guess he flew into New York. And got on a bus and somehow got to Missouri, um, but he had never been there to know anything about it. Uh, oh wow! So yeah, so he really here. it was uh, here. I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, 
yeah, it's actually kind of remarkable and things that oh, it's one of these things that I, I've only slowly started discovering and asking more questions about. It's something you just don't think about. And, and I guess it's a, I don't know, immigrant parents don't seem to want to share their stories as me and my sister have found out more. We've had to realize we need to ask these questions um, and <laughs> find out more about you know how they got here because it's really kind of um, it just blows my mind, actually, how you can go somewhere totally different for the rest of your life. Um, but that's what my parents did. Bounce, so, around, um, bounce around the planet and end up somewhere else. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So, mm. um, but yeah, so that's, so my dad's, so my dad was supposed to be the one who's take, supposed to take over the farm, but his brother ended up being the one to take over the farm. And, uh, and so they have, uh, kids and I had cousins who, um, like I said, one of my cousins now, I believe is taking over the farm. And then the other two cousins mm. live um, elsewhere in France. Um, and so when I lived, when I, uh, um, lived in, in Southern France for the semester, I went and visited them a couple of times. So, um, which was really cool. Um, what was the, what were some of the cultural differences that, like you mentioned that that had a big impact on you? Was there anything in particular or do you have like an experience that you, um, can, I think, can recall I don't that? know what it was. I think it was the, I mean, it almost reminds me of what we talked about before of seeing a new world of just like, mm -hmm. it was just a hundred percent different just, and, and not even in like, uh, like, oh, the culture is different. Um, in any positive or negative way, it just was different. And I lived mm -hmm. living with a family, like it actually boggles my mind, even myself. when I think back about the things I did when I was younger to just go and live somewhere else. And you meet a family in a train station and they say, hi, and, um, and they decided to have me live with them for four months right. and cook me food yeah. and talk to me. And, and I learned from them and just everything about it being so different, so wildly different from anything that I had done before and all the comforting yes. regular things of my regular life before, mm. um, and having discussions about, and my host father was very happy, to, very, very, very willing to talk about politics and, mm. and, and, and so in the process of that, like, I obviously realized I was very interested in it, but I just, I mean, I really didn't care about politics before this, um, mm. but I, then you do get to have this chance to comparatively say, Hey, that's really, you know, why is it that, you know, this is different here versus, you know, this is real. I'm seeing yes. how life is so different in this place compared to where I was. And, and even without judgment, value judgment, just like seeing a different world. Um, right. And it's that experience of, you know, you go somewhere else, the medical system is different. Yeah. The, the way you shop might even be a bit different. The way you live might be different. Mm -hmm. The way public transport is done is different. So you can just immerse yourself in, like you said, there's, all these differences. And at the end of it, you can go, and I'm still fine. And <laughs> yeah. the world's still, all of this works. It's like, you mean I can, I can undo everything and like do it in a totally different way and everything will still be fine. Yeah. That's, that's a really instructive experience, isn't it? Because I think, um, you know, if you just live in one spot and maybe I'll just speak for myself, but like, you know, uh, growing up in, in Georgia yeah. and then, you know, not really leaving the, the South very much until I was in my twenties, you know, a good bit older, um, you sort of, that groove gets cut in your mind a little bit about like, well, I guess things need to be approximately this way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess approximately they need to be this way. And it, um, and it is, it can be so mind expanding to just see that like, n no, you can actually, you can just redo all of this. 
um, maybe people should have access to healthcare. Right. <laughs> For example, maybe that actually is a good basic thing to make sure that everybody has. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I guess I'm implicitly putting a little value judgment on there, but I'll, I'll take that one. I'll take the responsibility for that <laughs> That's one. That's fine. I'll I agree think. with um, you. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, good. So after France, you came back. So that was your, your year off. So yeah, it was, well, it was a semester there. And then I, I came back and um, created a, like a global warming group, got very involved in climate mm. policy um, or like in being interested in climate policy. I created this group on campus. I did all sorts of, I became like super activist. I actually also with a good friend of mine, we started a group um, trying to remove trans fats from restaurant, from use in restaurants, which I think are now actually just banned, um, which is nice. Mm. Uh, but so I came back with just, very like I want to do things and then in particular within atmospheric science I just, just had this feeling I was like well I do atmospheric science like I'm one of the people who you know people ask me about climate change and so I was like maybe I should this is something you know uh, like I'm a person who might be asked about this and my opinion or my thoughts on it might matter to people because this is my field. Um, even though I was just like a, you know, a dumb undergrad, I didn't really know anything, but, uh, mm. so I, I got, I, yeah, I created this group, got really involved in, in global warming, um, kind of outreach and education and started learning a lot about climate policy. Um, and so that, so after undergrad, I took a year off and I knew I was interested at the time. I actually really wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I was pretty sure I wanted to go to grad school, but I had this much, this kind of newfound interest in the policy side of things. And so I, I somehow weaseled my way into getting a, uh, an internship at the world meteorological organization and Geneva, Switzerland. And so I was out there weaseled. for four you months. You probably applied and they said this kid looks great let's i well actually i mean i can't remember so i just emailed random people i think until somebody replied and mm -hmm. and i don't even remember who replied to me but somehow i just sent email after email after email and then eventually somebody uh, replied and said okay i think we can do this you won't get paid but if you can like there's basically you can just be here and we can give you a space and you can do <laughs> and and like we'll have someone who will like name your 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 advisor um uh, but like you mm. can't be paid and we can't cover any expenses or anything and i was like great let's do it so um wow so okay. yeah but like i said these are I things get emails are, like that now what's that i get oh sorry i, I get emails like that now oh, from yeah. people who just like can i just come to bass and um we're not actually allowed to have unpaid interns anymore um and I, there's there's some good arguments as to why maybe we shouldn't have unpaid interns because people should maybe get paid <laughs> you know for the work they, they do yeah. they obviously should um so uh unfortunately i i don't i can't usually write back and say yes i can't i can't be the person to bring you know somebody in yeah. the way that somebody was was for you but sorry that was in geneva you said yeah it was in geneva in switzerland nice. um okay and you said it was the World Meteorological Organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went there. So yeah. I, I moved out there. I found somebody also, I think, on Craigslist who let me stay with them for four months. And now I'm realizing all these people, there's a lot of people I haven't talked to in a long time. I should really reach out hmm. to them again, which is now making me sad. Um, but yeah, so um, I found, I just moved out there and I worked there for, um, for was it four months? And just like got to be in a kind of a policy oriented apparatus as in the world climate research program. Um, oh, cool. 
and I helped, I just think, I think my main task was just helping like organize a conference, which I can't even remember now what it was helping someone do kind of um, basic logistical stuff, but then just got to yeah. meet lots of people there and learn about the process at this like global level, um, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, then they coordinate, they coordinate some of the CMIP type activities. Yeah. They, they do a lot of yeah. this like high level coordination of all sorts of research programs. Uh, and yeah, I think they do CMIP also. Um, so yeah. And it was, it's just seeing, you know, it's like sort of the opposite end of how research, like, you know, it's instead of at the individual level, it's like seeing how things can get coordinated at the high level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially like climate policy, like at the time, I think climate adaptation was like, coming into its own. So there was a lot of, of thought about how do we help countries adapt? Uh, it was becoming less of a faux pas to talk about adaptation at the time. Um, cause for a while it was. And, um, yeah, so I, I, that was just kind of a chance. To, I was starting to explore interest in climate policy. Um, and then I came Big back from that and I lived in DC for six months and I worked at the, um, joint global change research Institute, which is in college park, Maryland, um, which is a kind of an interdisciplinary group of people working. They work on um, uh, like climate change impacts and, and modeling. Um, and so I was on a project there doing some work on ag- climate change impacts on agriculture and um, crop productivity, which I didn't know anything about. But mm. um, but yeah, it was just uh, like another place that did policy relevant stuff. And so and again, mm. I just emailed people until I was uh, <laughs> I was I like found someone who replied, and then they let me go, which was awesome. Um, and that was more of like a traditional research experience. I like wrote a paper there, um, which has actually been um, I think might be my most cited paper, um, even though it's <laughs> on stuff I've never touched again. Um, but the yeah, so I did that. But in the process, I applied to grad school. And I ended up going. So I had one year off, and then I, I ended up going to grad school. Um, to and I worked uh, working on hurricanes, and so actually, I guess I left out an important part, which was at the end of undergrad, I got in a research project on hurricanes. And I actually, even though I was a huge weather weenie, I grew up in Wisconsin, I didn't know anything about hurricanes. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I asked um, my advisor, uh, "Can I do a research project?" he just happened to put me on something that was related to hurricanes, and so that put me sure, on a yeah. path of studying hurricanes. And then I continued that in grad school. Uh, and got to work with Carrie Emanuel, who's a like preeminent hurricane person. Um, so, yeah. so that's kind of how I got into, there's a lot of like randomness. Um, and so the policy part was something that even in grad school, I continued on and I th- wasn't sure really I, for a while, probably my first three years of grad school, I was, I thought I might want to go into like, not keep doing regular science, but was interested mm-hmm. in doing policy work. Um, but then that sort of tailed off towards the end of grad school. I sort of, I think I actually got kind of tired of, I started having this feeling that climate policy discussions were a lot of preaching to the choir and Is not it? a lot of productive stuff and a lot of yelling at each other. And oh, so, really? yeah, so I had a very, I, I, over time, or maybe, and maybe it was part of just growing in as like a regular physical scientist to being like, you know, how great, how much I enjoy doing the physical science side of things um, that, that, balance things out. Um, and I, so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't even have a good sense of, you know, climate policy research. So what does that even look like? Are people publishing papers saying, well, if you use this policy, here's what happens to this 
you know, physical chemical system. If you use this policy, here's what happens. So are they working out the consequences of potential policies? And yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Like the, um, there's Mm -hmm. the big groups, these integrated assessment modelers that look at, um, uh, like economic impacts of, uh, like when you take, uh, projected climate change, you know, what does that mean for all of our human systems? Um, and so, yeah, there's that. I mean, I think I was even interested at the time of like, you know, going to be part of a policymaking process. Like how do you, there's the research side and then there's also the decision-making side. Um, Hmm. and we talked with, uh, John, John, so sorry to interrupt, but I just thought I'd briefly say, we talked with John Sturman on the podcast a couple episodes ago and, uh, he gave me the impression that in his area, he kind of does this dynamical systems approach to policy. So in that case, everything's modeled by relatively simple differential equations that have restoring terms and feedback terms. And, you know, it's, it's represented at that level. And I'm guessing that probably there's room for that in policy research, but I imagine they also use more sophisticated models to get back to the hierarchy idea. I'm sure they use, you know, many different levels of the hierarchy. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's where I, I'm not an expert on the policy side. I don't, uh, <clears throat> I think maybe I saw that less, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the real world, well, that's the tough thing, which maybe was part of my shift in feelings is just like the, you know, what's nice. The physical world is already really complicated and really interesting. Yes. And when you bring in the natural world and the human systems, I mean, I actually think it's incredible people who are able to work on those problems and not go crazy because they're so complicated um, is like, I, I admire that. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Right? Like I yeah. think I sort of was just like, oof. Um, Cause you have to model things like how will people's attitudes change as they become aware of something, Yeah, <laughs> for example. So you have to bring, you have to mathematically represent awareness yeah. of a problem, yeah. which is, I think that has a model communication in some way. I don't know. Maybe we should, me and you should just talk about the physics. <laughs> since that's, we, we know a little bit more about that. That's so. <laughs> true. I mean, I think it's cool to think about. I mean, I do think, um, yeah, I mean, even for me, since I, when I started at Purdue, um, so now almost five years ago, I mean, I thought I was actually going to shift a little more into a kind of applied risk world. Um, but I've kind of gone the other way almost. I'm more, working more on the really fundamental questions that we don't understand. Um, and so, but I mean, I think, I do think it's really important. I get knocked on, you know, how does this apply? How do we link this to the real world? And I think it's super easy to not try to answer that question, but then that can also mean then, you know, your fundamental discovery or something interesting you find on the fundamental physics side doesn't really get used, even if maybe you can Mm. see that it should be useful. And so I do think those steps are really important. Um, kind of connecting all the way through from the physical system to the, you know, policy relevant. Yeah, side. yeah, exactly. So, um, um, that's something that, um, you know, uh, Catherine Hayhoe, I talked to her uh, a couple episodes ago, maybe it was the last one. No, two episodes ago. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> the order, the order will be different by the time I release oh, this yeah, one anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, uh, but anyway, yeah, she works in that space specifically of, well, how do we take the climate information and make it useful for the policy folks? Because there's a translation step there that has to happen. Um, and how do we propagate through our uncertainties and the stuff that we don't understand? You know, how do we convey that mm-hmm. in a useful way for the policy policy folks as well? Okay. So, um, excuse me. 
I think I got a little, where are we in your story now? So you sure. went, well, I ended up in grad school, I guess. Grad so school. yeah, I guess then. So Carrie, Carrie Manuel, MIT. So yeah, I was then. at MIT, did grad school there, which is wonderful. Um, I was into policy when I got there. I kind of was less so at the end. Um, truthfully, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't, I actually, at the end of my dissertation, I was really um, worn out and burnt out mm-hmm. and didn't really know what I wanted to do next and wasn't at all sure I wanted to stay in academia. Okay. Um, and a was, nice thing was, a- was that I got lucky oh. is that I had a postdoc set up to, I ended up doing a postdoc uh, in civil and environmental engineering at Princeton um, with Ning mm-hmm. Lin, who's wonderful also. And uh and so she didn't care when I started. And so I think I graduated in May. And then I just was like, I need wow. to take some time off. And I just mm. want to travel and do whatever I want. And I was like, I, <laughs> I, I actually just kind of had to spend some time thinking about like, I actually, by this time, you know, going back to, you know, it makes it sound, when you tell your story in retrospect, you can make it sound like you knew what you were doing the whole time. And I mean, right. I actually realized at the end of grad school, I was like, I'm not sure why I went to grad school. I don't actually know mm. if I had thought at all about why I was doing the things that I was doing. Um, yeah, and I was, so I was going to ask about that. Yeah. I was going to ask about the MIT experience for you. And I mean, you've given me a little bit of a window into that. Um, and you know, it's okay if you want to decline to comment, that's totally know, fine. Yeah. But you know, I guess the MIT program has a reputation for, uh, in, in the past, it certainly did anyway. Um, and I've talked to other people who've gone through there on here that it's, um, it's, it's very intense and not necessarily supportive in the early years that it can feel more supportive maybe later on, but it's not, you know, there's a, there, there is traditionally a little bit of a weed out mentality there. Um, and I feel like the times when I've gone there to, to visit and I've had wonderful conversations with some of the scientists and students there. But I also feel like when I walk around, I see the stress on mm-hmm. people's faces, like then, especially the newer people there. I just feel like I see that. Oh yeah. Like uh, the newer faculty um, or the newer students or, uh, I guess I'm thinking of the students, yeah. but you know, probably the newer faculty also f- are yeah. <laughs> feeling the, the crunch there. So was it, did you find it to be a pressure cooker in that way? No. Did you have that experience well, so with that? yes, I know. I think the, the, um, reputation is something that preceded, like, I think that largely went away before. So mm-hmm. I started my PhD in 2008 and I think okay. they were at that time, very much trying to get rid of that reputation because it was warranted from my understanding from the people before me. But um, Mm. after that, I think it became, they were very working pretty hard to make it not like, not feel like a weed out process. And that doesn't mean that they Mm. don't have very high standards and you could get weed out. But so no, I never felt that. I think we all, um, I I will say I benefited. I had wonderful colleagues and friends or friends and now colleagues, I should say, um, in my class and the class above me and the class below me. And it was amazing. Um, and, uh, if any of you are listening, um, from those classes, I love you all. Um, and I feel very lucky <laughs> that we had this wonderful group of, of people who were super, um, like we, I, I learned more from all of them than from anybody from any of my classes, which doesn't oh, mean yeah. that I didn't learn a lot from my classes too, but like we just, yeah, it was like an incredibly dynamic environment. And I think we all lifted each other up a lot. Um, and I think it was mostly supportive. That doesn't mean that I don't think people were also competitive, but like, I don't think among the students, like I just 
felt very lucky in retrospect at the people around me and, and how smart they were and, and how fun they were. Um, mm. so yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. The cohort's so important. Yeah. Instead of people that you go through with. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I, think I think it's normal to learn more from them than it is from the professors. I think that's the usual course of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so from the professors though, there was never any, I, I don't think, I don't think there was a feeling of trying to get weeded out at all. I think it was a very friendly okay. place. I think it's pretty intense. Um, mm-hmm. So, but grad school is intense. Grad school no, can no be matter. intense. Yeah. yeah. I do say, I think something I'm at Purdue now, I think I love about Purdue is that I don't feel like it has that intensity. It's very, like, I do think the top, like these Ivy schools, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is true or other parts or in oceanography or something. Like, I think there is a level of intensity that's just like pervasive that I don't like. <laughs> um, and I've been, mm. I like my department now. I think people are much chiller. I mean, this may be a Midwest thing. I have a lot of Midwest pride. I think the coasts mm. tend to be more intense in general. So um, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm being unfair and not giving enough, um, not, not explaining enough of it, just using that dynamic because uh, at Colorado state, I really loved it out there because um, everyone was so supportive. And yeah. like you said, there are still high standards and th- there is still stress, mm-hmm. which comes from like, okay, I, I do need to bring myself up to this stand. I do need to meet the standards and I do need to, you know, try to get my dissertation done and try to write papers and try to do good, good work. But it's very nice when the professors in your department and the other students, when they feel generally supportive and when yeah. they feel generally it's nice if you can look at them and feel like, well, that's an emotionally healthy person. (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) and I'm not necessarily saying that the coasts aren't like that, but I'm saying there was a lot of emotionally healthy people in my department. And that was so good for me (laughs) to be surrounded by people who they, they did work hard, but they also knew how important it was to, to live and to take care of yourself and to pursue your, your other interests as well. And, um, and I, I think we miss something if we just pour all of ourselves into in that intensity of, of work. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the competitive kind of part of the, part of the work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That there's something like you said, I mean, getting back to that first conversation or an earlier conversation we had about how do you keep those creative fires going? And, you know, you basically were saying, do something else, you know, look at some art, uh, go play, play some music, listen yeah. to some music, you know, like in, in, immerse yourself in a totally different way of thinking and you'll come back refreshed. Uh, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. So no, but that, I told uh, I was, that was actually thinking <laughs> the same tangent. So I went with you on that tangent. Mm. It's good tangent. I agree. Nice. So you took some time off end of, end of, end of, uh, MIT. Yeah, and, uh, so I took time off and I went on a two-month road trip out west uh, and saw the beautiful um, American West, which I had never seen. I had no idea that that was not a place that we had traveled. We'd fly to California growing up, but I'd never been to um, – I think I'd technically been to the Grand Canyon at some point, but otherwise uh, never been seen anything out west, which is mm. just phenomenal. Um it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's I just it the most beautiful. It was just stunning. <laughs> and so I, uh, going to all the national it. parks and gale of it. Yeah. Oh God. Um, Enormous. so yeah, I just spent two months like writing about <laughs> like driving around and seeing beautiful things in nature and like writing a journal to myself. And, 
um, getting away from everything. Uh, and then I came back and had a couple more months where I just like baked bread and I was had dreams of opening a bakery and, mm-hmm. uh, um, and like just, you know, I don't know, just like let myself think about what I might want to do with my life. Um, because I was realizing like, you know, I was, for a lot of reasons, I think I was very fortunate going back to like my dad being a professor. I just always have been on this kind of academic track. And I think I hadn't really ever thought mm-hmm. about what I want to do, um, or why mm-hmm. I'm doing what I want to do. And so I, um, so it gave me some time to get away. And then, um, I had this postdoc lined up, which again, was really fortunate that I was able to take this time off and then still go to a postdoc, um, working. Um, yeah. and actually I know you had, cause you had, uh, Talia Mayo on before and she, yes. so she was also in our group, which was awesome. Um, she's great. Um, so yeah, I got to be in a, and, and again, a different environment is in civil and environmental engineering, people who do a lot of probability and statistics. Um, and so working in a group who does storm surge, um, risk modeling, which was, which was mm-hmm. awesome. And again, a different, a different field. I got to learn new things, um, learn probability theory at great, lengths, which has been super useful for me, um, since then as well. Um, uh, but for me personally, it was like a time where I was kind of like, all right, this is great. I'm going to do some things and see how I feel about jobs and what I want to do in my life afterwards. Um, (laughs) and so, um, but that time off before the postdoc, I mean, I came back very much rejuvenated and, and loved what I got to work on there, but it was also had a very, you had mentioned about being emotionally happy. Like in grad school, I became very emotionally unhappy. And so my mm-hmm. postdoc, I was, I mean, postdoc life's always awesome in general. I think, I don't know if this is, if you had a similar experiences, um, but like I worked a nine to five and at five o'clock I was done and I went and I like weekends. I, well, my, now my wife, she was still living in Boston at the time. So we go visit each other a lot, but it was just, I just had a very healthy work-life balance and it was great. I got to mm. work on science questions that were of interest to me. And then, um, but it was also just like a very, in a very happy place, which is great. Uh, and so, yeah. And so then from there I ended up, I applied, I applied to a few years. There weren't a ton of faculty positions that were like fit in with what I was interested in, but I applied to a few of them and then I got the offer from Purdue, but I actually had offers. Mm -hmm. I had interviews set up to go um, into the private sector and to work at insurance companies. Yeah. I I knew I was interested in risk. Like I mentioned, I, I, when I, at the time I had gotten really interested in thinking about how do we use like physical insight into risk modeling, um, uh, and so I just kind of, I had always been interested in risk side of things and risk applications and kind of thinking about shit started to shift a little bit more towards like, you know, maybe I should work on stuff that's more real world oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a, it's kind of a booming sector now actually, um, in the private sector. Is that still, so what's that? Is that part of what you do still? So that's the thing is, so I, I like, I, I, am very interested in like usually at the end of the day my my top my high level science questions are very real world focused in terms of like i'm interested in how extreme weather may like works in the climate system and how it may change mm-hmm. with climate um and so that comes from a very practical viewpoint of like people want to know how severe thunderstorms are going to change with climate change or how hurricanes are going to change um, but then my actual research en- ends up because I end up deconstructing that problem. I end up at phys- fundamental physical questions that we do not understand at all. And I end up at this point where I'm like, well, if we're going to say anything about how severe thunderstorms will change with climate, it, mm-hmm. if we don't understand how severe thunderstorms work in general in the climate, 
system, then like, how can we really say something about that? Or do we trust the things that we're getting when we just say, well, we run a model and see what happens. Uh, and so I end up um, studying, spending most of my time at these points where I deconstruct to a point where I'm like, wait, we still don't understand this though. <laughs> and so right, we right. need to understand that first, don't we? Um, and so, or at least like, yeah. that's the the question that my mind ends up spending all of its energy on is like, um, is like where, what is the really fundamental question in here that like, if we understand better, um, we, um, we can understand the real world better. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, so my questions often come from very practical needs, um, you know, just literally like my father-in-law asking me a question or my dad asking me a question about something very practical about hurricanes or something. Mm-hmm. And then I inevitably, I end up pointing out that, yeah, well, we don't really understand this one basic thing. So like, you know, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to change. Um, and so, yeah. so anyways, first you have to tell him like, hey, hang on, I first need to work out a relationship about the slope of the pressure surfaces <laughs> before I can, <laughs> before I can answer your question. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And so, you know, that's, Maybe, yeah, I don't know why. That's just how my brain ends up going. And so, mm-hmm. um, um, so yeah, so most of the, my actual science is still very much on the fundamental side of, of things. But there's mm-hmm. often, um, like, I think the simplest one is so I spent a lot of my time, my PhD even was, was on understanding hurricane size. I said storm size varies a lot. And, um, yeah. and that this paper, this aqua planet paper, um, we mentioned about the making the sunshine everywhere on the planet, um, that actually brought forth a new understanding of storm size. Uh, and it was sort of yeah. by accident. Um, it came out like the theoretical understanding now, um, that we're still like elaborating on now in our group, um, but came out of that work that was really mostly like curiosity driven. Um, and it was not, uh, it, but it required like developing a new idea <laughs> or, pr- or proposing a new idea or figuring out that there's a new, a different idea out here that might be relevant and then connecting mm-hmm. it. And so now we have a way of understanding fundamentally how potentially how hurricane size works um, what sets the size of a hurricane that seems to be a lot more relevant to the real world than our previous theories. And so now Which, I think we have a way to think about size and think yeah. about say why size might change or might not change under climate change, things like that. Yeah. So, can help you with projections, for example, with those climate projections. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, mm-hmm. so both, yeah, like both with prediction, but also with like understanding our projections, like our projections give us this answer. Like, you know, do we believe that that makes sense or do we understand why that's happening? So, um, so anyways, yeah. I've got a pretty abrupt, uh, left turn to propose cool, for, our, do it. <laughs> for our chat and we can talk about this uh, as little or as much as you like, sure. you know, the, that, that ball is in your court. So, um, you have a section on your website. I'll read a little bit from it that I think is important where you say, uh, we need to be able to talk about race with each other even though none of us actually want to. So my question is, do we want to? (laughs) Is that something we want to touch on? Um, You've got a nice list of anti-racism resources Mm -hmm. like on your website um, where you talk about, you know, you you mentioned some interviews, you mentioned, you know, defining some terms. Obviously it's a a huge topic and, you know, it could be an entire podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe the, um, maybe a good way to go since you have so many good resources on your website 
Do you want to talk a little bit about um, how that has affected your story? Like how the, the race part of you know navigating through academia has affected your story? Is that, is that all right? Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about anything. I mean, I put it on there partly because yeah. I realized I needed to talk about it and I didn't know where else to put it. And so I thought I would just mm. blab about it on my website. So um, yeah. Uh, so I mean, the, the, for myself, I would actually say the story. So race has been a part of my life for most of my life in part because no one ever knows what I am. And mm. so I gradually discovered this uh, kind of late in high school. Um, like my hair, which is actually getting longer now, if it grows out, it turns into a little Afro. And so mm. my name, like you mentioned before, my name's French. It, it looks like Chavez. People think it's, it's, it's Hispanic, but it's not, it's French. Um, because of my mom has, who's Filipino, Filipinos are already sort of a little bit ethnically ambiguous um, sometimes, but they, my, um, uh, <clears throat> so like, bec I look from my mom's side, I tend to look more Hispanic, especially if you see my name. Um, but if my grow my hair out, people sometimes think I'm part black, which I'm not. <laughs> uh, so I had this weird, my whole life, I've had a very, uh, I, you know, I put on my website a unique experience of of race always being around. People always asking me what I am, uh, mm. and mm. and it being a conversation starter. But I, I never really having it. I, I know not not having like really a negative experience with it. Like I didn't feel like I was ever being um, judged negatively. It was sort of just a curiosity that would then end up t having me talk about my race with, uh, or my, my heritage and race in general with other yeah. people, but also just finding this whole point ridiculous that anyone thinks race matters when apparently like people, you know, I know what I am, but like people think I'm something else <laughs> and I don't really know mm. what that means. Like, it's sort of like, <laughs> like that was always, that's been on the top of my mind for my, much yeah, of my adult life. The title of your, that section on your website is uh, "What are you?" And that's your that's your title. That have people asked you that that directly? Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. Really? And it was something. Yeah, okay. even uh, and and that's the thing is there are people. This you know a lot of mixed race people get this, uh, and some people hate it, and some people like it. Um, I hmm. or I don't know if people like it necessarily. I wasn't offended by it. Um, I just thought it was funny um, and it was interesting. But that's because I had the privilege of it being something fun to talk about. It wasn't something that mm, I felt mm. like I ever had a negative experience with, um, growing up or something, you know, where you have something that happens where you get judged in a negative way and you're treated unfairly and uh, because of how you look. Uh, and mm. I, I don't think I ever had that. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just have never personally had a direct experience where I was like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why are you treating me this way? It just didn't happen. And mm. I think, Part of it is because nobody, I don't actually look like anything. And so nobody knows, or I don't like anything specific. And so I think people, part of, of being racist is prejudging people. And that's based on how you look and an association right, right. with how you look. But if I don't look like any one thing, I don't know that people have a way, <laughs> like judge me for yeah. anything in the first place. So, um, can I, can I bounce something off of yeah, you? Totally. Cause I, I thought of, I thought of a potential concise, phrase to express um privilege and i think a concise ex explanation or a concise phrase to express it is the idea that um well people will project things onto me and privilege is where you largely benefit from those projections and assumptions mm -hmm. right and so you know um 
somebody looks at me, they make a certain set of assumptions, probably many of them without realizing it. Um, you know, they don't know anything about me. They don't know anything about my life, but that's, that's a psychological thing people do all the time. They, they project and make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just part of what brains like to do. Brains like to categorize things. So it's interesting to hear your experience of, um, people's, um, you know, projections and assumptions. They don't know their brains don't know where to put you. And so their brains don't know how to, you know, uh, how to sort you and sort sounds, sounds kind of like a weird way to say it, but that is the process that like brains are doing that, yeah. right? Brains are trying to categorize things yeah. fa- fairly or unfairly. Um, you know, so that, okay. That's interesting to hear that. Like, um, that it hasn't, you haven't felt that direct kind of experience that you, as far as you can tell, but it's because maybe you scramble people's radar, the way that you present, the way that you present to the world that scrambles people's radar. It feels like that's what you're saying. Is that kind of, I mean, that's, that's, that's my uh, hypothesis. Yeah. Is that basically okay. it's okay. like, it's not easy. Yeah. Like you said, I think a lot of, a lot of privilege is tied into just like when you say prejudice, we see prejudge. We're judging ahead of time yeah. something yeah. that based on how you look or how you act or any mm. anything, really. It doesn't even have to be race alone. But um, yeah, and I think in my case, I, at least I imagine that it's given that I have discovered – you know, I actually literally for a while, I would ask people where you think I was from. So maybe I should, I should have done that with you, but I already told you and find out where people think I'm from. And I well, would get I just the, in, the entire world, except for Scandinavia. I mean, it was kind of amazing how long <laughs> it would take. <laughs> like it just, and it was, it was a fascinating, like it sort of treated as like a social experiment. I was like, Hey, it became self-aware that like I can ask these questions and see what I find mm-hmm. out and see how the world yeah. perceives me. Um, and, huh. uh, yeah. So like I said, but it was all, I was, I had like a positive view of this, um, so, and yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the thing it feels like is maybe if nobody, it's pretty obvious that no one ever had any idea what I was. And so mm. I can imagine then that if, if people are prone to prejudge you based on how you look, uh, apparently I could be, if I can be anything, then it, like mm. you said, yeah, scrambling a radar is a good way to put it. So has your, uh, as far as you can tell, is your Institute keeping up the momentum? Cause over the past few months, I guess there's been a lot of momentum towards, uh, keeping anti-racism in the conversation at, at all different levels, all the way up and down the hierarchy. Is that momentum still there or do you see any signs of it kind of slowing down? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping we can keep it as like a regular thing right. and kind of keep that steam going. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so definitely. Yeah. I mean, Purdue this fall, Purdue has had a big racial justice series with all sorts of fantastic speakers and panels, um, discussing the topic of race in a lot of different ways. Um, we, they're also working to develop a lot of new, like I can just say we're having a workshop next week in our department, um, that I was able to coordinate with some folks in the, there's a diversity and inclusion department, um, or division in the, at Purdue. And so they're going to come in and do some, like they do regularly training on things like, um, implicit bias and LGBTQ issues. Um, and so now they're developing ones related to anti-racism. So, um, and I'm really happy about that. I think, Personally, this word anti-racism, I find to be incredibly appealing. Um, I mean, I, mm. uh, and this book, uh, to, for, for me, for the last six months, like since George Floyd is murdered, um, his book has just been like, to me, it's the, like, 
the the book um that actually I, I think maybe it's partly because as we talked about we like to deconstruct things to me he deconstructs racism in this like really clinical way that um makes it very very clear um what we mean when we say things and so what it means to oppose racism and to be anti-racist and i find it yeah, to be incredibly to be, elucidating um it's the how to be an anti-racist book uh by uh ibram Kindy. Yes. Ibram X. Kindy. Yeah. Uh, mm. And so that I think just provides a nice framework and I'm really happy they, I think at Purdue, the, the, the people in, like working on developing um, ways to, um, to uh, kind of educate everybody, but also like think about how do we put this stuff into action? Um, they're, very focused on this concept as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm eager, like mm-hmm. I said, they're, they're developing these materials. We're having a workshop next week, which I'm excited about. Nice. Um, cool. But there's, I think the biggest thing to me, I can say as someone who, so like even in my department, I joined, I've been on the our diversity committee since last year. And I've always found it extremely frustrating. Like you know, your original question was talking about race. We need to talk about race is that just people don't want to talk about it. And so people talk about it, but in this way that they just dance around it, we can't say brace. We can't say black. We can't say white. We can't say mm-hmm. Asian. We can't say these things. Uh, and so you end up using these vague terms and nobody's precise about anything. And so nothing is measured or measurable and we don't really go anywhere. Um, we just kind of say we want more diversity. And I think we've switched very strongly into this mode of like, okay, we can actually say these things out loud. Now we can say mm-hmm. if we value divert, like the biggest thing I've always been frustrated with is we say we value diversity, but then we can't actually like openly say we, that means that we want a more diverse department, which means we want to hire more, more black people and brown people and gay people. And like, and, and, and mm-hmm. obviously, you know, at the end of the day, you don't ever want, you're never going to go out and say we're hiring like a person for their their appearance or anything about them but um there's always been this disconnect between saying that we diversity is important but then like not being able to say it's important or not being able to explicitly value it and i think now there's much more discussion of that of of saying like you know, if you're going to say you value diversity, then it means you have to hire more diverse people and you have to find a way to do that. Um, and the responsibility is on you to say that out loud and to, and to pursue it. And so, um, I know that shift has happened and our department has been super supportive about, um, being outwardly open about that. And actually this has come, I'll say, I don't know how this has been in other places. Our students have been amazing at pushing for this. Um, and the students, all of our students, the white students too, mm-hmm. I think a big part is white people standing up and saying, Hey, this matters. And I'm going to go mm-hmm. to my way to spend my time and energy to say that this matters to me and to do something about it. And we've had a big push from our students to say, Hey, faculty, are you going to just put out another statement that says we value diversity and then, and then stop, or are you going to do something about this? So what are you actually doing? And so they've been pushing a lot. And so, and then we've had a lot of like at the higher levels, there's a lot of support for, um, for developing initiatives. But I think the grassroots part is really important. I mean, it has to be at the end of the day, a big thing I think is really important in here is that individuals have power to do things, to change, Mm to critically look at how you recruit and ask yourself whether, you know, are you recruiting from your tiny little network of people that is going to be because they're of the accumulated privilege of like the simple thing I always say is like, we, you know, we all dream of having a grad student who comes in and just does everything on their own. (laughs) Like, and that sounds great, 
Um, but the fact is that the grad student who does everything on their own is someone who probably had uh, extensive research experience in undergrad, which means they had time to do research because they weren't working another job, um, mm -hmm. which means they um, and they also probably got good grades because they weren't working another job and they had time to study. And that goes you can just keep going right, back and, right. and, and accumulate all of your privilege. And the fact is that at the end of the day, you're very likely to be picking from a very narrow pool. And so these are mm. things like these kinds of conversations now we're having are very different than before. And I think, but I think a big part of it is, is we're, we're allowing ourselves to talk about race and talk about racism and talk about what that means and talk about actions that you can actually take at an individual level, at a department level. Like it's not, it's not just, it's actually, sometimes I, I get frustrated at the term systemic racism because it makes it, it's obviously true, but it, it makes it sometimes feel like you're powerless to do anything. Like it's just this like floating thing that exists. And, and I think a big part of it though, is just kind of the sum of our individual actions and we can decide to change. We can decide to take actions that oppose these structures and that, that, that bring in more people of color into our fields. Um, and, you know, we're gatekeepers to our fields and we have a lot of power to make those changes and they may feel small at first, but they're still important. And when more people decide yeah. to make those changes, um, you can, you can make real change. And so, um, so yeah, I think it just comes, I think the, the culture is much more supportive of these conversations now. And certainly at Purdue, it's been, it's been great. It's actually been really hmm. nice to have people to talk about these things and to feel like we're, we're talking about concrete things instead of kind of just generic platitudes towards diversity. Hmm. Um, do you have a specific example? Speaking of concrete things, is there a specific policy that's being put into um, place? Well, or? so in terms of policies, I think um, to me, the biggest one that I've been saying is, uh, you know, when we recruit, like I think from an individual level, um, like the basic thing is like, it's, so this is like an individual policy, but I, you know, it could be a formal policy in some sense is like, we all recruit when we recruit people, like no one really pays attention to how you recruit. And so, uh, I think most, I did not personally put a lot of effort into broadening my network. Um, and I think, um, in the end, we decide who gets into our field. So if we're going to sit there and say our mm. field, you know, like geoscience is incredibly white. Um, if we're going to say that's a problem, then uh, the only way to change that is to get more non-white people into the field. And, you know, mm. nobody gets into the field without getting a PhD first. Uh, and so we have an opportunity there to say, okay, well, are there things we can do actively to promote getting more people of color into graduate school, for example. Mm. Um, and so that's the kind of thing where, um, <laughs> going out and recruiting at places that are not your advisor and your small network of people at top institutions who tell you this person is great because I already know because they worked with me for three years doing research and they yeah, published two papers yeah. already so I can pretty much guarantee you they're going to be amazing and asking yourself uh, is that who you want is that your job actually at like a big level is our mm. job to be to pump out as much science as possible, in which case we are, I think of that as being like a CEO of a company. We're trying to be as efficient as possible with things. Um, or are we educators, in which case our goal is to, and mentors, in which case our goal is to bring people into the field and who you might, you know, you don't want to bring someone who like doesn't have any of the tools. You know, if you, at the end of the day, you'd need to know math and have some appropriate level of, of tools to be able to succeed. But like, 
can we look and say, hey, I want to get this person. This person has potential. Um, can we, should I view them as saying, well, this person who might be a person of color or, or from some other disadvantaged group, um, they haven't had the privilege to have had three years of research experience and write two papers um, as an undergrad, but I see a lot of potential in them. Do I want to be a mentor and an educator and, and value that? Uh, and so I think the long story short is it's just like a reevaluation of how we recruit, and, and I think that can start at a, just a basic individual level of asking yourself, like I'm recruiting very differently now. I'm sending out ads to every university regionally that does anything even where somebody might be potentially interested in studying what I study um, to try to find people who like, I think even a big part of the privilege side is a lot of people um, you have to believe that you are uh, capable of going to grad school to go to grad school. And I've been amazed even right. at interviewing people, how much, um, you'll find a student who like on paper, you're like, wow, you have a physics and math background. You're, you're good at computers. Like you're interested in weather. you'd be great. And, and then they tell you that, oh, I don't know if I really am cut out for a PhD <laughs> and I'm, mm-hmm. and you have to be like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, uh, like I want you to apply, please apply, please apply. Um, yeah. And so but it could be, there's some reaching be, out that has to be done. And, um, yes. So I've heard, um, for example, Michelle, um, sorry, Melissa, my bad, M- Melissa Burt, uh, at Colorado state. She's, uh, one of the deans of, she's the Dean of diversity and, in- and inclusion. I'm probably getting the specific title wrong, but it's uh, in that, in that ballpark. And she was talking about the, uh, experience of kind of not feeling like she belongs in grad school, like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, Melissa is uh, an excellent scientist and has always, you know, had that capability and has, has always had the technical side of it down pat, you know, no, no problem. Um, but nevertheless, she had this experience of not feeling like she belonged there. The phrase I think you used was like, Oh, I don't know if that's the place for me. And, you know, for her and, uh, and we, we talked about this with Talia uh, Mayo a bit as well. You know, if you go somewhere and nobody looks like you and nobody, if nobody looks like you and nobody really has the kind of background that you've had, um, even if everybody's pretty friendly and supportive, it can still, from what they're telling me, this is just me repeating what they've taught me is like, that can still lead to a feeling of, oh, this isn't for me. This right. isn't the right environment for me. So that can end up pushing you out, um, or it's a pressure anyway. It's an outward pressure, you know. To to go back to our hurricane discussion of three <laughs> three way balances, yeah. you know, there's pressure gradients pushing you in different directions. That's one of the pressure gradients potentially. It's like, well, there's nobody who looks like me yeah. here, so I feel that uh, pressure. Um, so that's why representation is important, and why maybe a little extra extra encouragement is important mm-hmm. as well. Um, just a really brief anecdote. I, I had an awesome. Uh, student, I taught uh, math part time at a two year college in Atlanta while I was in grad school, and uh, one of my students was um, so good. He was just kicking butt, and just I mean, he was doing like all the problems in the textbook. He was getting everything. He was going way, way uh, beyond you know what he had to do for the class that I was teaching. And uh, you know, at some point, I said, you know, I think, I think. You know, you you could go to Georgia Tech. You could apply to Georgia Tech, and you could do really well there. And he felt really nervous. He's like, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right right place for me. Um, 
but eventually, you know, I got him, I, I, I encouraged him and he applied and, uh, he, he got in and, um, you know, started, started going there and I haven't heard from him in a while. I hope everything went, went fine for him, but like he absolutely had the capacity, but something was holding him back. Um, and he, he's from a minority background. I didn't ask him that directly, but I could imagine that could be part of the pressure, right? I, I, I could imagine like, oh, well, I don't know. People like me don't really look, go there or people who look like, like me don't really go there. Um, so yeah, that representation part is important. Like how we recruit and how we encourage and how we draw people in is, is important. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's, that's, thanks for letting me sp- spin off on that oh, there a little bit. That was, no, I think yeah. it's, uh, like I said, we have to talk about these things. I think it's great that we are. So I'm glad you bring it up. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, Right. So we usually kind of, I guess we've been going a couple hours now. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm great. Yeah. This has been, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah it's nice. It's cool. It's been great. Great chat with you. I'm glad, glad you invited me. This is, this is really wonderful. So ah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I've really been enjoying it as well as well. Um, I often kind of, I mean, we could go for a long time, but you know, I, I, I'll often wrap up with a kind of set of questions about what you've learned. Um, and, uh, so if you don't mind, I'll ask you that kind of set of questions and then we can wrap up if, unless there's something else you want to cover. Sure. Uh, that sound okay? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you can see, it's now, it's now dark here. If I turn off the light, so now you know, it's complete. It's, <laughs> so you can sorry, prove this to good. me that the sun has indeed, the earth is indeed rotating. The sun, yeah, the earth is indeed rotating. And this is not good podcast because people can't see now. I've turned off the light in my office and it's completely dark. I'm illuminated only by the monitor. Uh, so I look like I'm in some kind of witness protection program. But yeah, I've <laughs> proven that the planet's rotating and that we are not surrounded by suns so that on Earth, the solar radiation is not uniform all the way around the planet. Um, so your model's wrong. I don't know. What, like, <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> Uh, maybe next time we'll get it right. Uh, maybe, that's right. Yeah, there's just one star. That's the what you need. <laughs> that's only one. Um, so what's something that you learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with it? Something, oh, before, like, in general. Well, I guess you've always kind of been, you've always kind of been academia mm-hmm. adjacent. So maybe, maybe you got privy to some of these things early on. But I guess let's just say you know, before you actually actively were in science mm-hmm. and doing it was something that you, that surprised you was something that you learned as you got more involved with science. Uh, I think, I think the biggest thing has been sections something we talked about before, which is just how much creativity and I'll say courage is required for it. Um, because I think mm-hmm. like you had said before, I certainly had this feeling of like, like, I, I mean, you know, my parents were like mad, do math, do math, do math. I had this, definitely had this feeling that science was just like you learn the equations and then you just write them down and you, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it was like solving a math problem in class. Um, and which it's just um, like, not at all like that. Like there's not an answer in the back of the book at all. And, uh, and I think that's been the biggest thing, um, is, is the, process of like how you figure out what you don't know is kind Mm. of amazing. Um, and it's really scary too. Like, I think, uh, um, yeah, like I, I think that aspect and just realizing how much, um, 
think actually you have this on your website about how important it is that just like science doesn't just happen. Like people have to do it and people Mm, have to decide to do it. And, uh, and that, and people could decide not to like people, you know, person who publishes really important paper that changes the world could have just not done that. And, I don't know, done something else with their said, time. I'm going to go live in France and eat cheese. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And, and which would have been wonderful. <laughs> and I would have been really happy. They probably would have been super happy. So, um, so yeah, I think that aspect, the, the creativity side um, and the courage is just like the, that process. There's so much that has nothing to do with doing math. <laughs> like the math mm-hmm. is sort of like mm-hmm. how you, get there in the end sometimes. Um, but like the toolkit that's, yeah. yeah, it's like the toolkit, but yeah, yeah. It's like the toolkit. Like you, the toolkit doesn't build your house. <laughs> the toolkit that's doesn't right. build anything for you. Um, yeah. And a, a painting, it, like being a painter is, it's not just about the brush and the, right. Yeah. Uh, the palette. Yeah. So the, I think you need to know those things, but it's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, yeah. So I think that's in the biggest thing. And I think, I think as a related thing. So we have a, I have a two-year-old daughter, um, uh, and I've, uh, come to realize through her and through like some outreach things that I've done is that like, I love children, uh, cause they ask the silliest and most amazing questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, people say like children are like little scientists. They're like trying to discover the world, which I, I more and more appreciate, uh, Cause I, uh, I just, I've gotten like the most crazy questions from little kids, um, and, uh, like I remember this, uh, this was like four years ago, I did an outreach event where there were like little, I think there were little six year olds maybe coming through and we had a little globe and it was spinning and we were talking about hurricanes and stuff. And then I said, Oh, this is the, it's spinning. And then, um, they pointed to like the South pole and they're like, what's that? And I was like, Oh, it's the South pole down there. And then, um, and then I pointed to the top and I said, Oh, here's the North pole. And then this girl, this girl said, where's the East pole. And I like, mm. I just like, it was like the most, at first I just stopped and I like my jaw dropped and, you know, in your head, you're like, what a ridiculous question. But then from the child's perspective, like, why, why not? Like, that's another direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and so there's something that like childlike creativity that goes into figuring stuff out, I think is awesome. <laughs> and like, I'm always no, amazed. It, if the earth were an ellipsoid then because like it's north and south pole because that's an axis of rotation yes right? right so if we stretch the earth out and where it has another axis of rotation then yeah there, true then there, maybe there maybe there, there could, could be, be yeah pole. right right and see and now you now the what west happens pole. is now we're thinking about like an actual we're like trying to figure out something that could actually be a real question um, yeah it's part two of Mythbusters where you go like, <laughs> okay, but what if that was true? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, what what do you need to make it true? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually even, um, that's another anecdote, was that uh, my wife's um, boss's son, who I think was like seven at the time, was started at, he, through his dad and then through my wife would send me emails with questions about crazy, just crazy questions about, you know, hurricane versus a tornado, who would win? Um, and then one time he sent me a question that was, uh, um, you know, if an asteroid hit a volcano, 
like who would win or something, something, something like that. And I was oh, like, I like that. I like that. One. Yeah. And so I sent this to my friend who's now my colleague, actually, who's Jimmy just hired. He's a faculty member at, at Purdue, Mike Sorry. He, uh, so I sent this question to him cause he's, uh, he's like a planetary geologist, um, and mm. impacts person. And then he responded saying, um, sent me a paper from, um, another <laughs> colleague of mine now who actually just recently passed away, sadly, Jay Malosh, who had written a paper mm. about whether asteroids could cause volcanic eruptions, um, and mm. induce volcanic activity. And I just was like completely blown away with this, that this kid who asked me the silly question and you want to just be like, Oh, you're cute, cute child. Um, like you could, as a scientist, like, I think my perception would have been before, like you'd be dismissive of like, kids are dumb. Like people get smarter as you go along. And I almost think it's like the reverse. Like we get dumber as we go along because we stop <laughs> asking these creative questions. Um, and we get so more constrained, what's that? Yeah. We're too constrained, we right? More and, constrained. <laughs> we put all the armor on and all the pre the old, the concepts, right. Right? the the old notions, we kind of wear them and bulk up and then it's, we're not as agile. We're not as free to, exactly, to move around. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And so it's just, yeah. So I just, I think, and I think that's even something I've come to love about science. When I think about my favorite papers, they're usually ones where it's like, you're thinking about something in a totally new way. And, and, you know, and maybe in some of those cases, they started from asking like a silly question um, that, you know, mm -hmm. a child would ask. And I think that's amazing. Like, I think that's so cool. And it's just not at all what, you know, your original question was like, how, you know, what have you learned? Like, that's something, certainly I was in the set the mindset of like, which I think most people probably are that like science happens by just sitting and like doing math on a piece of paper <laughs> and being like, there's the answer. <laughs> so why didn't somebody do this a long time ago? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think that's even actually that, that question is a really also a great one. I think, I don't know what you mm. think about this is like, um, it amazes me that stuff, oftentimes the, the biggest advances to me, the second you see them, you're like, Oh, that's so obvious. Oh, yeah, and yeah. then you're like, yeah. how didn't, anyone come up with this before and then it even goes to yeah. i think a lot about your question about like or your point about people doing people have to do science they have to decide to do mm -hmm. it and like mm -hmm. i think sometimes there's this feeling and I, this may be the other you disagree with i don't know but like that science will just like progress on its own it's like this unstoppable force which is to say mm -hmm. like i've had discussions with a couple of people with this like if somebody wrote that seminal paper you know in 1980 Let's just say, I don't know why I'm picking 1980, but like if they didn't write it, somebody else would have written it in 1981. Like somebody would have figured that out anyways. Like it was just mm -hmm. inevitable. Um, and I feel like it's like not at all true. Like that there's stuff where someone had to do, make a leap of, of knowledge that like, once you know the leap, yeah. it's like, it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but like that leap is like an incredible, that's like the source that like creative leap is the advance. Mm. And then like, once yeah, you make well, that leap, you can like roll down, you know, once you leap across that chasm, yeah. like now it's just like rolling down the hill from there. So, or something. I think, um, I'm not a historian of science, but my understanding of like Einstein is that, special relativity was coming. There were loads of people who were like okay. close to special relativity. There, you know, there, there were, if he hadn't done it, somebody else probably, yeah, yeah, somebody else would have done it. It was in the air. But from what I understand, general relativity just was a real, like kind of came out of nowhere, was a real shift in thinking and was the real genius leap of like, Interesting. yeah, but what if we stand way over there? 
<laughs> and what is, yeah. you know, like just, just like a, and I think that was more of a big, a big leap. And I guess, yeah, I, I don't, I guess the, um, I don't know if it would have happened the next year had he not written it. Probably eventually it would have. Eventually I think somebody would have gotten to general relativity, but, um, I guess there are some discoveries that are more like in the air and some that really are big leaps. Um, so we, we could probably sort them a bit. We could probably, there probably are different categories. Um, and then, you know, lots of us, we write papers where, yeah, probably if we hadn't done it, somebody else would have, because there are, there are lots of things in the air where it's kind of naturally like, Oh, well, this is somebody's done this and somebody's done that. Therefore somebody should do it in the Southern ocean. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that some of my papers are just like, but what about the Southern ocean? (laughs) So we'll do it in the Southern ocean. And like, that's fine. That's, it's a paper. It's good. That's, that's like, yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Um, somebody would have done that had I not done that one, but um, I'm glad, I'm glad I did it anyway. Yeah. No, even the small things, I don't know. I mean, sometimes the small things you don't do. And if you're not, if you didn't decide to do it, I mean, maybe somebody would have done it, but maybe not, you know, there's a finite number of people working on stuff. So, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. How about teaching? What's something you learned about teaching? Learned about teaching? Like the process of teaching? Yeah. Or, um, yeah. That you didn't know before. I guess that's the definition of learning something. <laughs> Fair. It's, I guess it's, I guess it's uh, re- redundant when I say it that way. <laughs> you learn something, something that you didn't know yeah, right. before. Um, what I learned about teaching, uh, I think trying to think what's the most interesting thing. I mean, obviously teaching is incredibly difficult. Uh, I think certainly compared to when I was younger, it gets you to learning, realizing how, I mean, teaching, I feel like is how I actually learn stuff because you find out how quickly Mm -hmm. you don't know anything. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, you, you, uh, you do learn a lot by doing it because, you get these great questions, you get, um, you have to, it puts you on the spot in a different way. You know, it puts you on the spot from the the very, excuse me, it puts you on the spot from the very basics all the way up to the more advanced stuff. Whereas if you go give a talk, um, probably you only feel on the spot about the specifics of your project. You don't feel on the spot about like, um, yeah, but what about, what is Baraclinic and what is, So how does, how does Barry, this actually, yeah. okay. I have a, a better answer for you. I think about it. The thing that I really come to appreciate is when you teach is actually very related to what you just said is that, um, is how much, uh, how many levels of knowledge and thinking we take for granted. Um, and that's mm-hmm. exactly kind of one, one level of that is exactly what you said is jargon, right? So we have jargon and you yeah. break down words, but it goes way deeper than that. It's something that like I'm teaching, I teach the class I've taught um, since I started consistently is this sophomore level intro atmospheric science class. And um, it's, I've turned it into this, trying to make it a quantitative, it's like the first quantitative class um, for students. And like, one of the biggest goals of that class has become like, it started off just being like, kind of like, okay, we're going to teach you some of our laws, like, like sort of like a simpler version of a more advanced class. Cause that's like where mm. you just mm. don't go into as much depth and stuff, but it's actually like the goals of my class have become totally different over the four years I've done it because I find like there's these things like a skill of, you know, how do you make describe an equation in words? Yes. 
like what does math mean and how do you like some people are good at an equation you give them an equation they have no problem working with it but they couldn't tell you what it means in words and that like math i guess at a basic level like we use words that's our language math is a language physics is a language uh and like when you teach like we take for granted that we understand those languages (laughs) um and we understand what it what uh um I mean, I think the easiest one is just, yeah, like when you say Y equals C times X, that can, that like, I guess, like that can be expressed in words in a lot of different ways. It can have a lot of different meanings. And then when you attribute a Mm -hmm. physical meaning to that equation where things have units, now it has even more ways of of understanding that. And we Mm -hmm. just take that for granted in a way that like I discovered over time when I would talk about these things and I would get feedback from the students I just continuously was like, again, deconstructing, like where I just like assumed that this leap, the step made sense. <laughs> like this, that like when you look at an equation, it means something. When you look at a graph and, and a line is going up, it means something. And like how to, um, mm. that like, uh, what we think of as simple knowledge has so much, so many layers in it, um, that I don't know if anyone ever explicitly tries to teach, but like, it's become for me a a really important goal (laughs) that like, I don't even care if you learn atmospheric science in my class. Like, I don't care. It's about like, can Mm -hmm. you, I want you to learn how to say, if I ask you a question and you can turn the words into um, a physical meaning and the physical meaning into an equation, and you're like, this is the equation that explains this. And then I can plug in the numbers and then I can go back out and then take the equation and tell me in words what it means. And like, that is an incredibly difficult process that um, is like kind of amazing (laughs) Uh, and isn't like, I don't like, yeah, it's never to me been an explicit teaching goal, but like, maybe I was lucky to learn it over time or maybe I didn't learn it actually. And I just learned it in grad school and in practice or something, but like I see it now. And so I think that's, that's been the bit is like when you teach, I don't know if it's that we, we either ignore a lot of stuff that we're supposed to be teaching because we take it for granted or like, or maybe we're teaching stuff at at like other levels of, of knowledge and understanding and ways of thinking that like we don't realize um, yeah. and actually I wonder sometimes if that's where people get off, like people end up leaving a field because of it, because they're missing that step in there that's being taken for granted. And then they just go, mm-hmm. oh, I don't get it. So I remember um, for me. my, my physics professor for my, my first undergraduate, uh, physics course, I remember him standing at the board mm-hmm. and we were talking about heat flow through a slab. And I just remember, you know, he wrote he drew the line for the, for a fraction, right? It's like heat flow H equals, and he drew a line and he just started talking about like, Oh, well, it's going to be proportional to the area. So I'll put that up top, you know, and it'll be, um, it'll be, you know, so he just very quickly like sorted things about, well, what should be up top and what should, on the numerator, what should be down on the denominator, just based on our physical intuition about how this should work. And that moment really stuck with me because that was for me, one of those moments where I went like, Oh, right. It's just, it's not fundamentally different from, yeah, well, you'll move more heat through a big thing, (laughs) you know, like we can talk about it and we can connect it to language and concepts. And yes, this is just a quantitative, you know, different way to express that. And uh, that was an exciting moment for me. Yeah. Um, and I love that about physics. I think that was my, my favorite part of physics was 
Um, I mean, general relativity is cool. Special relativity is cool. Learning about that, all that stuff is cool. But my favorite part was the, like tr- that translation exercise yeah. of like, how do we talk and think in, uh, in a way where you can fluidly go between math and ideas yeah. and language and graphs. And, um, it's just, uh, and that's, that's such a useful skill to have. Um, if you do anything, it, even if you do anything quantitative at all, it doesn't even have to be science. You know, that's just, that can just fundamentally underpin how you do quantitative stuff. Yeah. Just briefly, you reminded yeah. me of another thing Take that it. I love and I, really preach in my class is like, so this intro atmospheric science class, we go through all these principles and a big thing that I am a very strong believer in is that, and I tell the students, I'm like, you already know all of these laws. You just don't realize it. Like these are Mm. laws that also apply to things in your everyday life, you know? And like when you, and, and, and I spent a lot of time trying to think about analogs, that they are tangible to them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. like talking about when you talk about um, the Stefan Boltzmann law, like you can talk about or Ween's law, radiation laws that you, you know, you, that students know when you turn on your stove and your, your coil starts to glow, like you can see these things. There's lots of, Mm -hmm. there's like every single law that we apply to the atmosphere. And I actually think this is like a kind of a negative in our field, at least in my opinion, is that I sometimes feel like, at least atmospheric science, this might be more on the weather side. I don't know, but it's taught as if it's a kind of a different branch of science, but it's like, not. Mm. we're really applying these, a lot of these universal laws in different ways. And so I try hard to, like, I think there's lots of things where students intuitively know a thing. And if you present them an equation and just tell them, this is how it applies to the atmosphere, they'll never realize that they actually already know that principle. Like, like you said, yes, heat right. flowing through a thing, <laughs> like they, <laughs> they touch things. Like people, students know heat transfer. They just like, don't, everyone knows it. you feel it every day. You go outside, like you, you, you these are tangible concepts and like being able mm-hmm. to connect them, uh, I think is really valuable. Um, and and even can like bring people in more like, and again, bring people who might not realize, like think, think they can't handle it or they don't understand it or it's too, too mathy or too abstract or something that, um, yeah. it's like an opportunity to bring more people into the field. So. so physics education over the last couple of decades has done a really brilliant job with this. Yeah. There's loads of good, um, just in time teaching yes. active physics. There's loads of good, uh, and a lot of that, I mean, a lot of that came out of MIT, um, they've done a great job kind of re- revitalizing that field. And I think we could learn a lot from them and, uh, could, uh, probably have a similar kind of revival in atmospheric science and oceanography teaching, um, where we try to draw on what, on what they've learned. Uh, and some people have done some of that, a little bit of that, but, uh, that's, uh, that's exciting to me. I, I think, uh, I don't really have much teaching in my current role. My, I'm at a research institute yeah. and I do the occasional guest lecture here. So I sometimes miss, miss teaching. I was a full-time instructor of physics and astronomy for a couple of years uh, a while back. And I really loved that, that job. Um, I like my job now. It's fine, but I do miss teaching sometimes <laughs> because, uh, well, because you get to touch on all this lovely stuff that we've just been touching on. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just so fun to think about. Um, so what's something that you've learned about kind of navigating the academic world? Something that, uh, kind of Um, intuition or a a tip or like, uh, Oh, I didn't know it worked that way. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I think, I think the biggest thing is, has been 
I mean, this is more of like, yeah, compared to before you start, or like the start of academia is how much you're, you just are, you have power and you're in control and you decide oh. what you do with your time. And this is maybe right. again, specific to as a professor is like, even though I actually said earlier, I don't like thinking of yourself as a CEO. I think there's negatives to that, but like, I think that's a big, there's like this huge leap when you get into be a faculty where it's like all the decisions are yours versus before mm-hmm. you just like worked on your science and, you know, maybe even, you know, whether it was under advising uh, within a group or advised by somebody, or, you know, maybe you were like a free floating person. Um, but it's, I think coming to or uh, realizing the like joy and also, um, you know, anxiety that comes with like making all of the decisions yourself, but that that's, I'm trying to embrace that. I think that took me a couple of years to really realize like, this is, hmm. you know, I have someone who says this is like their small business. It's like, you decide how you use your time. You decide how you treat your people. You decide who you bring in, you decide how you treat them. You decide how, how you want to do to do everything and how you want, what you want to instill in your students and in this, and mm. also in your classes and how you teach and all those things. Um, and so, yeah, I, don't, I think that's the biggest thing is been, yeah, no one tells you that, like you just come in and then, and you sort of think like, Oh yeah, I mean, now I get to, you know, I'm still going to be doing the same thing. And to some degree you are, you get to just keep working on science projects. Um, I like the, uh, so it kind of shifts from, you go from thinking, oh, you know, someone really ought to, it goes from that to, oh, that's, that's me. I'm the someone right, who right. ought to do the. <laughs> and I, I think that's <laughs> I super cool. Um, but it's scary too. Um, but you have to, yeah, I don't know. Like just embracing that I think has taken me some time and it's still a struggle. Like mm. I struggle a lot with aligning, you know, I think what's cool also is I can work on whatever I want and trying to align research with funding things. Like you mentioned about how funding mm. you have to, can be very specific and it's also slow. And sometimes you get a cool idea and like, you know, you do modeling stuff. Maybe you've gone through this. I don't know how much freedom you have in your position, but it's like, sometimes you have an idea that like you could spend, you could just decide I could do this in the next month and just drop everything mm. and do it. And like, I struggle with deciding, you know, is this something that I could just do now? <laughs> Or do I write a proposal and, you know, it might take a year and a half to get funding for, and then, and so it's going to take a lot longer, um, like those kinds of things. But those are all, in some sense, it's still great. Like you have the power to decide those things. You also get to decide, hey, I have this cool idea. I just want to explore it now, or I want to have my student explore it or, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, you have a choice of, huh, should I, um should I go down this road or should I keep trying to bring in funding to keep my Institute going? Right. Right. You know what? And it, the equation does, does change a bit, doesn't it? In terms of what you feel you really have the freedom to, to do. Um, so that's part of why hopefully you can get a whole bunch of, uh, you know, good people to work with and maybe give them the freedom to run off and do the thing and explore. (laughs) Um, yeah, well, hopefully we still have some freedom. I, I do still have some, um, I just started a new um, fellowship where now like, okay, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, and I, I have some freedom, but I also do have things that I said I would deliver. Sure, so yeah. I do need to like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I do need to make sure I deliver those things 
or if those things change dramatically, I need to tell the funders like right. how they're going to be different and why. So there's a bit of a management process right. there. Um, but maybe that's not, maybe that's not exciting. Um, have you learned, what have you learned about, uh, I was about to ask it the wrong way. I was about to say, have you learned anything about, and then, you know, no, not really. No, I haven't really learned anything about that. But no, of course you've always, you always learn things, uh, um, no matter what. Have you learned, what have you learned about, uh, working with people and kind of mentoring people and, um, cause that's kind of a leadership role, right? You're, you're championing people and you're mentoring them and you're kind of sometimes advocating for them, um, what have you learned? Uh, what have you learned about that? Yeah, uh, a lot. I mean, I didn't know anything about it coming in. Uh, I think the I love that part. It's something even like right now. I'm sort of feel like I'm transitioning from focusing more on my work to helping my students and postdocs um, with their projects and making and trying to enable them to do everything that they can that um, to have freedom to explore and do cool things. And so, hmm. um, I think, I don't know that I learned anything cause I don't know that I knew anything coming in. So it's all just been kind of discovery. Um, hmm. I mean, I just love, I mean, nothing makes me happier than hearing my students come up with something, propose some idea on their own and me just thinking about like, how can I help you like, call, you know, uh, think about that idea, make it more precise. How do you, how can I help you think about how to test that idea? Um, and that is, brings great joy, um, which maybe I don't think I had thought about. I mean, I love teaching, so, you know, I always known that I like helping other people, um, but it's really come in like my, my group's awesome and they've just done some really, it's, it's been really cool to see like, cause now I'm in, in my fifth year. So I have, uh, my students, I have my one student who's eldest, who's been, she'll be finishing next spring, uh, and getting mm -hmm. to see her grow for the full five years has been awesome. Um, it makes me very proud. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, there's nothing specific I learned because I don't think I had any thought about it. I just, I like helping people and it's been really great to see them grow, but also learn so much from them and like, yeah. and, and feel like I have, they're like colleagues too, who we can, like, I can bounce ideas around with them and we can just kind of think together. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. So that's, that's it. I think just trying to be a responsive and helpful and nice person <laughs> to make mm. sure they're having, they have guidance and thinking about where they're going next, but also just kind of, I think the other thing is just, I, I very quickly came to appreciate, like, I want my students to be happy. I actually don't really understand yeah. the concept of, you know, there's, you hear about these horrible advisors or people who are working crazy hours. And I just like, don't understand that. I know for myself, I'm like, if I'm not happy, I'm not doing good work. So like, I just tell my yeah, students, yeah. I'm like, tell me if you're ever unhappy. Like I, I, and I worry sometimes, like sometimes somebody seems to be working too much and I'm like, can you just, just like, don't work tomorrow. Like, don't, you need like, don't <laughs> like, you need to, like relax. Like I want you to be happy. Like I don't, happy people yeah. are, I want you to be happy in general. Um, like there's, I don't want you to ever be unhappy, but like, um, I also just think like, I don't know, like good science doesn't come from unhappy right? people. So, um, no, it seems obvious now, but it, uh, it, it just makes good sense, yeah. right? Like if you're miserable, you're probably not going to do great work. Right. Like it's not, that just doesn't really make sense. Yeah. It seems so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm going to straight up steal a question from another podcast because I just want to hear your answer. Um, So can you tell me about a time when you laughed really hard? (laughs) A time when I laughed really hard. (laughs) I'm just stealing it. I'm stealing it. I just want to hear your answer. Laugh a lot. Uh, It doesn't have to be a great story. It could just be. I know. I'm just imagining scenarios where I laughed super hard. (laughs) But while you're thinking. I'll, I'll share one of mine okay. and you can, uh, so it's, it's not actually, it's kind of general, but like, so when it's just like me and my son, I have a nine year old and when it's just the two of us at home, um, we can get into this really silly place and it's just excellent. Um, where we are basically singing everything we're doing. We're making up, we're making up songs about whatever is happening. Um, your son's eight, you your son eight? is that right? Uh, nine, nine, nine. Okay. Nine, I thought nine, I, yeah. I listened to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Oh, right. Yeah. So he, he was, he was eight, <laughs> eight at the time. Okay. <laughs> when I talked to Talia. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a song about, um, there's a spider on your face. I'm not going to sing it. I, I don't quite feel like I'm going to sing it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, there's you a spider on my okay. face. What am I going to do? So then, you know, you throw the spider on the floor. Well, now there's a spider on the floor. What are you going to do? You know, uh, I guess I'll get in my car, drive away. Now the, the spider's in the car. You know, it just kind of continues like that. Yeah. And um, we just get we just get so silly, like doing voices and doing songs, and just uh, it's it's excellent. And um, it's one of my favorite phases of parenting so far. Is this like <laughs> we can just mutually crag each other up by being totally silly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's awesome. That's not so much a story, but that is a time when I'm like, oh man. Yeah, I mean that's where I <laughs> certainly I was thinking about things with my two year old. So um so that I totally understand that because that's I mean, even just yesterday, so she's two, so she's not not quite as uh, advanced in that way, but she uh this is like the stupidest one, but this happens all the time. I mean, she's just constantly making me laugh because and I and I love it and it even just goes back to like watching her discover things and uh and do silly things and surprise you. Um, but yeah, I mean, yesterday there was like, this is, I don't even know if it's going to make any sense. There was uh we were just like laying on her play mat and there was this big squishy stuffed animal pillow. And I was, she was playing and I was laying on this pillow yeah. with my head on it. And then she, um, she said suddenly she wanted to lay on it. She was like, I'll lay with you. And and so she put her head on the pillow and I was like, Oh, and then she was like, uh, she said, move, move, <laughs> no room. And I was like, Oh, there's not enough, there's not enough room here. And she was like, no move. And I was like, Oh, why don't we go over to the couch? Then we can like lay together on the couch. She said, she said, yeah. And I was like, you want to go to the couch? And she said, yeah, couch. And I was like, okay. So I got up and went over the couch and then she just smiled and just put her head right in the middle of the pillow. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, you didn't want to lay with me at all. You just wanted the entire pillow. You just, just smiled at me. <laughs> I was like, clever, <laughs> clever. So there, I definitely let out a huge laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. Why don't you go away? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so excellent. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kids are the that's best. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to keep that element of just like random silliness mm-hmm. in your life, mm-hmm. there's such a great, great engine for that. Um, I think this is going to be a two-parter, which is great. Um, I like two-parters. Cool. Um, the podcast, you know, um, I mean, you know, oh, wait, is two-parters a podcast? Is that a podcast? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh maybe. Right. I was just looking at the time and noticing. Oh, that, oh um, two-part. I thought like and, there was another podcast called the two-parter or something. So sorry. I misunderstood. Uh, there, there probably is, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. True. Anyways, continue. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good. This has been great. I really, I really love this, this chat. And 
we don't have to wrap up even now if we don't want to. I will but, have to. Uh, I have to go to the dentist in a little while, so I will right. have to go probably in like ten minutes. So maybe I should, that's a good time that's, to say that before it becomes too late and then I miss my dentist appointment. <laughs> oh yeah, that that'd be bad. And uh, I can see a whole string of horrible things happening because uh, I kept you too long. You, know, you missed the dentist and like, oh, they would have spotted this thing. And then like, there's a whole chain right. of like, but if only the two Dan's had stopped talking 10 minutes <laughs> earlier then like, do you ever, I enjoy, I was like emailing back and forth with other Dan's cause you get the, the like, this is so stupid, yeah. but I like it. You do like, hi Dan, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Thanks, Dan. You know, it just it's so it's like, it's got a symmetry to uh-huh. it. You know, at the top uh-huh. and the bottom, there's that symmetry of the, the Dan thing. Um, that's not interesting, but that's fine. <laughs> um, no, I was just thinking about splitting this. I might split it into two parts because of the, the length of it. Um, but at the same time, I'm also okay with a long, I, I like long format podcasts actually, yeah. you know, I, I listen to a lot of them. Um, not in one shot, you know, I'll spread it out and I'll listen while I'm washing dishes or something over a couple, couple of days. But, um, I don't know. I, I like long format stuff. Um, so what should we end on? Well, there's lots of possible ways we could end. Um, you know, I know some people listen to this show. It's like a Sunday morning relaxation thing for them and they'll go take a walk and listen. And, um, you know, if, and, uh, hello to, to you out on your Sunday walk. Um, uh, thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening this long too. You're here near the end and I, I appreciate that. Um, so we have lots of students listening as well. You know, students also tune in, um, who kind of want to get a sense of what different people's pathways have been like, I think, and what those, what those futures look, might look like the different distribution of future pathways out there. Um, this is kind of such an interviewee question, so I apologize for, for that. But, um, so if there was somebody like a student listening who was interested in getting into, um, kind of your broad area, like hurricane research, do you have any advice for them or suggestions for them? Um, like specific to my research or like, so you're saying like if Uh, they were like an undergrad, a senior who's like wondering about grad school. Just say, yeah, let's, let's do the broader, like, should I go to grad school or not? Or somebody they're expressing like, Oh, I kind of want to go to grad school. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Cause I usually tell people these days, I tell people to just explore what they want to and whatever feels right. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. certainly my advice at a basic level is to email people. Like I'm always open. If I, mm. like, I think people, we assume that all, like, we're all just people. Like I, maybe it's another like stereotype of you thinking about professors as being, you know, so professorial, like we're all just people. And I think if it's something that interests Mm -hmm. you, I think a lot of people like myself, if you just send an email and say, Hey, I'm interested in this, um, you know, like that, that won't hurt. And you'll hopefully get a lot of, you'll probably get a lot of uh, very friendly responses. I think not everybody, but you know, um, nice. So, I mean, that's like a really boring practical piece of advice, but is to just, you know, and I think it's actually a night and a kind of an amazing thing in academia. We just all post our email addresses um, and you can reach out and, right. and um, ask and, and share what your interests are. And I think if you are someone who find us, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said, yeah, it's easy to find yeah. us relatively. Um, yeah. And then like, I think, you know, to me, grad school, 
like I said, I mean, to be totally honest, I think part of my struggle with that question is that like, I'm someone who I said, I didn't know why I went to grad school. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't say that I regret anything. Obviously, like I've gotten to where I am and I'm, you know, things are great. Uh, it's not like I was happy the whole way though. Um, I do think it's important to think about why you want to go to grad school. Um, and I think the basic thing is, you know, if you, if you're interested, if you just feel naturally curious about why stuff works, I mean, that's the most important thing. I mean, the second part is that you do mm-hmm. also, like, I actually feel bad sometimes and I'll talk to students who sound like they're really interested, but they, you know, haven't taken any calculus and it's, it's, that's tough. Like, I think there's a level of basic, like, you got to take those math classes and you got to have that mm-hmm. foundation um, to you know, the, those tools in your toolkit that if you don't have, it's, I don't know what to say. Like, you can't, I can't, it's not just curiosity (laughs) that gets you to do science. So, but beyond that, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, if you feel like you're naturally curious about how stuff works, anything, and, um, that's a really great thing. That's a lot of what grad school is and research is, is just not really knowing what you're doing, but wondering why, stuff works the way it does. And so that's, you feel like you have that. That's something you should, you should think about grad school. Um, and I think that's a, like, no one ever knows why they do things. Like, actually, that's a big thing I would say in general is I also, at the same time I say, you know, you should, it's good to know why you went to grad school. I also was someone who felt like I was supposed to know what I was going to be doing in five years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a totally, don't, you don't need to do that and you don't need to know where you're going to go. You can get a PhD and study hurricanes and there's a million different job paths for you out there. There's plenty of people who would love to have someone with quantitative skills that you get in a PhD to do all sorts of things. And, um, mm. and I actually think very, feel very strongly about not when you go to do grad school, that doesn't mean you have to be a professor. Um, right, right. And, and I actually hate, I feel pushed back very strongly against a, uh, like a, stratification of like of quality that like oh professor is the top of the pinnacle and then like all these other things going leaving academia and going into the private sector is somehow bad like that's all Mm. stupid i hate that i think you should do what you want to do in your life and and you can change that at any time and so it means you can Mm -hmm. go to grad school you get a master's get a phd whatever there's gonna be a lot of things you can do later on too and so um yeah. So I don't know. So that's, that's, that's another part As I know I've talking to students or people who worry about, you know, I don't know if this is right for me or if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'm always like, that doesn't matter. You don't have to know that that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. So, that's right. That's um, right. but you know, do think about if you want to spend five years doing a PhD or not, if that's, if that's really something that sounds abhorrent to you, mm. you probably that's maybe something you should think about too. So, yeah, well, let's get you to your dentist appointment. <laughs> we should get you there. <laughs> this has been great. I've really enjoyed this chat. Yeah, Dan, this has been awesome. Uh, it's thanks. really nice to meet you and to, and to hear your, your perspectives on these things too. It's really awesome. So, uh, Thanks for coming on and thanks for being so open and, sh- and sharing. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's been great. Well, I uh, wish you well, stay well, stay sane, stay uh healthy and <laughs> thanks yeah i hope yeah it's not the, it's not a great time right now so you're i don't know how because you're you're outside of cambridge is that right yeah yeah, yeah. so we're in a new national lockdown yeah. okay. um which the school stayed open this time so it hasn't actually changed our life that much we weren't really going out that okay. much anyway gotcha. so the new lockdown is 
uh, fine, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it will help. Hopefully it will help bring the numbers back down yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. We're not in great. I mean, actually mm-hmm. that's one thing. I wasn't sure if I should go to the dentist, uh, keep my dentist appointment, but I guess they're mm-hmm. taking lots mm-hmm. and lots of precautions, but yeah, it's not, not a great time. It's probably the last thing I'll go do outside for a while. So, but so yeah, I'm hoping yeah. you stay healthy as well in your family. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, you, you all too hang in there. Um, is that, uh, hang in there is probably fine, right? Like, uh, all right. My, my family's, uh, here, I hear them downstairs are making some noise. It's, uh, dinner time for us. So I think we're going to go, uh, go have dinner and stuff, <laughs> but, uh, man, it's been great. Thanks so much for your time. Definitely. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Thanks, cool. Dan. Talk to you yeah, later. Thank you, Dan. Talk to you soon. Bye. There you have it. Two Dan's saying bye to each other multiple times. If you want to follow Dr. Shavas, that's where you can find him on Twitter, at Dr. Shavas. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. Yeah, okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. I really liked that chat. I kind of feel like that was a, a classic, nice, uh, long-format version of episode of this podcast. Where it, it really is about two people chatting. It's about the person. It's about getting to know them better. There's some science, there's some pathway stuff, and whatever else comes up along the way. And uh, I think we just both really needed that chat, because we both just wanted to keep it going, you know? So, uh, checking in briefly. Yeah, I'm doing okay today. Uh, November has been hard, to be honest. The sudden darkness in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, that time change, it's been it's been pretty rough. I'm okay today. There's a bit of sun today, this weekend, so that's helped me out. But, uh, yeah, if you're feeling rough right now, I know you're not alone. There's loads of people who are feeling the lack of sunshine here in the Northern Hemisphere, if that's where you're listening from. So uh, take care. Just know that that's part of it. That's part of what's going on. Of course, there's loads of other stuff going on in the world. But um, I don't know. For me, a lot of my mood is just how many photons is my body getting. So take care of yourself. Drink water. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.